0: You know, throughout all my years, I've been archiving and banking away training and experience, training and experience, training and experience. And today, there was enough of a balance in that bank of training and experience that I could make a large withdrawal. And that stuck with me. It's, that is it. You've got to be thinking about it. you got to be mentally prepared. you got to do your training. you got to take training seriously. you got to seek training outside of your department. You have to do these things if you want to survive these incidents. Not only physically survive, but mentally survive it. Take it seriously, add to that bank of knowledge, and be prepared, because one day you're going to have to make that withdrawal.
1: What he didn't know at the time is I had watched the entire incident live on Exxon. I was at the PD when the call dropped. I was recovering from surgery, so I couldn't go out into the field. But God had a plan that day. I was exactly where I needed to be. I watched from the time they made entry. I watched you render care to the man. I watched first aid. I watched them pull you off. I, I saw the whole thing happen.
2: Check in on each other. And I think that was one thing that we did. And when I came to a point where he said, you know, Commander Grubbs did point out that therapy and counseling services are available to not just me, but to both of us, it might be time for you to make that call. And I did, and I'm very grateful that I did.
3: You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast.
0: We can heal,
1: and we can learn from those mistakes,
5: and together we can bridge the divide.
3: Only Texas could turn defeat into a legend rosemary kent it's a story about the determined will of a group of texans fighting for what they believed in against all odds and facing certain defeat they did what they had to do that's just what texans do the legend she spoke of is known as the alamo in san antonio To this day, it is a symbol of strength for the state of Texas, even though the battle was a defeat. Texas is proud of our tradition. We are proud of our law enforcement's history. Going back to when the Texas Rangers were founded in 1823, when Stephen F. Austin, known as the father of Texas, employed 10 men to act as Rangers to protect nearly 700 newly settled families. Today, we're having on two proud native Texans. Gretchen Grigsby is the Director of Government Relations for the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement, also known as T. Cole. And the other half is a Marine. He's a former DPS Texas Ranger, former Round Rock Texas police officer, and current Executive Director of Operations for the Texas Racing Commission. This couple embodies what being a true texas servant is we will detail their lives and how they intersected in 2010 in austin texas to form this partnership of service it's the assistee officer's great honor to welcome on gretchen and aaron grigsby welcome to the atl
0: stage thanks for having us thank you for coming down
3: yeah i also want to uh we have a special guest co-host Commander Grubbs. Can you uh, tell the listener uh, a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so I am Melissa Grubbs and I'm currently in my 20th year with the Round Rock Police Department. I am serving as the commander over the training division and I command the peer support team as
3: well. Okay, so we're going to get into how you got involved with the the grigsby's and and um and I, i'm really that, that's on down the line but i want you to jump in you've got so much experience in texas law enforcement and understanding this culture our culture please jump in at any time of course thank uh, you Thank you for your time for doing this for one absolutely so gretchen uh you and i met in, in austin at uh the the t cole award ceremony and we're going to get to how this all kind of came together, but you do want the listener to have a. They, you want them to, when the Never Give Up On You song hits, you want them to have a lasting impression of what this message is about. Can you tell the listener what that is?
2: My main goal today is to make sure that any spouse of an officer who has found themselves in the situation that I was in understands. What they're going to go through, um, what life will look like over the next few months, and that things do get better, and that life does go on, um, and that I am here to serve as a resource for anybody who just wants to chat.
3: Yeah, life will go on, but there is a process, and and because life goes on in the next weeks after, or months after, even years after, you never know what's going to, going to happen, a new story driving through an intersection hearing about something happening in another state that could trigger those emotions and you go through it all over again having an award ceremony working on a on a texas police memorial it all can bring back bad memories and bad experiences and i i i want to apologize to all the spouses out there because i i know we've touched on a little bit in some episodes but we need to do better including the family because the family is uh you know you have your blue family but your real families uh they can't be neglected either
2: you know what though every department is different every marriage is different every critical incident is different and so that's not to say some are doing things better or worse than others but if there's a way to improve where the spouse feels included from the get-go i think that helps the process along or at least it certainly did for us
3: well, I think you can improve anything. I mean, just even the way we set up the tables here, I could probably have done it better. You know, I mean, there's always an improvement and different perspective that's brought in that you can learn from and just use later on down the road as a tool in case you need it, you know, because in this profession, more than likely,
0: you might need it someday. Absolutely. One of the things I, I would like to do is thank y'all. Uh, I think the program, we've listened to several of the podcasts. She introduced me after... Uh, Y'all met over at T-Cole, um, but this is over 26 years now I've been in law enforcement. So I've seen a little bit of an evolution on how we have treated our own PTSD, our own officer-involved incidents, whether they were shootings, whether they were critical fights, whether they were crashes. Um, it has come a long way. So you guys doing these podcasts and opening, cracking open the door that I've got to say, traditionally within law enforcement, we keep doors shut we have secrets we 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 sneak the file away and we don't talk about other officers' instances and then slowly over the years now um rightfully so we're now openly talking about some of the difficulties some of the problems some of the impact um the ripple effect of of these instances so thank you for doing the podcast cuz you are opening the door
3: thank you that you know you that means more to me than you know i appreciate that all right Grigsby family commander, are you ready to dive into this? (laughs) Let's do it. All right, let's go. Gretchen, I want to start with you. Where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Arlington, Texas, which is roughly halfway between Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, Had happy two parent household, my brother and me. uh, Had a lot of great uh, family time and upbringing. Uh, My dad retired from American Airlines a few years ago. My mom's a retired teacher. And so uh, the world of law enforcement was new to all of us uh, when I started working and getting into this field.
3: So just for context for Arlington, Texas, it is for the listener, because we have people that listen even out of the country. So Arlington is west of Dallas. And... Sad to say, it is actually the true home of the Cowboys. <laughs> it There's, is. The Jerry Stadium's there and occupies uh, that big piece of real estate, along with Six Flags, along with the Texas Rangers. Absolutely. It is, although, <laughs> it is pretty much the entertainment <laughs> hub and the sports hub. Uh, we Thank God we still have the Mavericks and Stars in, in town. But, yeah, sadly, the Dallas Cowboys are up in Arlington. All
2: of that is about less than three miles from my parents' house. So my dad has actually walked two
3: Rangers games before. Wow. Well, that must be nice because that traffic over there is... Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Like, yeah, it's awful. where did you go to college? I went to UT. Okay. So
2: I moved down to Austin in 2002 and never moved back.
3: Wow. Been right. here ever since. What was your major?
2: Political communication. And I'm one of those that actually uses the degree that I got. Uh, I, oddly enough, started watching the West Wing when I was in high school and thought, hey, that's pretty cool. I really like this government stuff, and I like the the idea of being able to have an impact. And that was the major that I chose based on that.
0: She still watches them on reruns constantly.
3: You know, I, that's one show I never got into, but I've heard it's great. I like all the I like all the players that are involved in that. It's, I mean, hell, they got a stacked lineup. But then, if you want to go see the, <laughs> I guess the. Uh, Adult version of the West Wing and seedier side of politics. Go watch House of Cards. Oh, sure. And, and that, uh, yeah. Have you seen that?
2: Real life, yeah, I've yeah. seen some of it. Real life
3: is somewhere in between the two. <laughs> yeah, it always is. So when you got you go from Arlington, Texas, and you move out to Austin, what was that life like for you?
2: Well, you know, I started off as a pretty typical college kid, right? and Lived in the dorms my freshman year, and I was very lucky to have uh, a potluck roommate that worked out well enough that – Our second year, we moved into an apartment together, and we ended up being roommates all four years together, and we're still good friends to this day. Uh, But, you know, we did a lot of the typical college Austin things, 6th Street and that, and uh, tried to spend some good time checking out the lakes and the restaurants and different things that Austin has to offer.
3: When you... Were you looking at going to other colleges or what drew you to UT? I mean, we, there's a lot of history here in, sure. in that college.
2: Yeah. The main thing is I knew that I wanted to go to work in government and UT being in Austin, the capital. seat of yeah. the seat of the capital in Texas. Uh, and my brother also was a senior at the time that I was a freshman. And so I had had the chance to check out UT and see a little bit more what the school was about. And so... That actually ended up being the only school that I applied to.
3: I'm actually surprised you're wearing maroon in here today. <laughs> this is cranberry thing. <laughs> oh, okay, much. <laughs> <Sorry>. it's not <laughs> crimson. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners will see some pics later. She, so. She's going to lose her alumni status. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Aaron, you're up. Where'd you grow up? I was born on Fort Hood, Texas. Right now it's no longer Fort Hood. It's uh, what Fort Cavazos. So uh, right around the Colleen area. Born in Darnell Medical Center uh, to a Army family. So, very brief time in Colleen, and uh, my grandfather actually retired as a command sergeant major with the with the army, and went into Colleen Police Department. So he spent two careers, one in the army, and another as a uh, finished out as a detective. Uh, Actually, one of the individuals that probably shaped my youth uh, the most was his service in the army, and then uh, at the Colleen Police Department um, as Strange, or maybe not so strange as it sounds. One of the shaping moments was, if for all the old timers out there remember the Luby's massacre.
3: Yeah, they actually showed that in, during our academy class, and in, uh, in Dallas they showed the VHS video of that. It yes, was a very. I'm sure you've you've seen it. It's a very eerie sight when you hear the you see that because video that that kind of trauma and that kind of uh, carnage on video was uh, rare, yes. and I don't think that was released for the public to see. No and you could hear, like, elevator music in the background yes. as they're going from table to table, and it was really bad.
0: It was it was horrible, but he was one of the uh, key detectives on that case. And, uh, I mean, guys, three-war veteran, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, went uh, uh, then went to a clean police department, and I'd never seen that man break down in my entire life, nothing. I mean, serious cuts, broken bones. Guy didn't even wince at anything. After that incident, uh, he he broke down pretty bad. So that was kind of a— wake up call, I guess, to me that, you know, all your heroes with capes on everything, they can, they can't break down. They can't have human. their own trauma. They are human. Uh, but it shaped, it shaped me a lot. And I think I was a senior in high school at the time. So it kind of solidified where I wanted to go in life.
3: Yeah. I could tell, you know, in your, in your bio, you basically, you mentioned there's no desk job in your future whenever no. you were getting, <laughs> and, and, and hearing that now from, from, you know, your family and, and, the way you were brought up, you you were
0: kind of destined for, you know, a life of service. I guess you could say that my mom and dad would probably want to throw something across the table if they were here at me. Uh, they, they weren't really a fan of me going into the military. Um, that's actually kind of how I ended up in the Marine Corps was uh, throwing away a scholarship for a civil engineering program, and I, I walked. Past, I know, I know. I, I walked past the recruiter's office because at the time, I just, I just want to get away. I wanted a challenge. I, I kind of knew that I needed something different, and uh, I must have been the easiest sell going into the Marine Corps because I walked by, and he's like, "Well, what are you doing right now?" I'm like, "I'm about to go be a civil engineer," and he said, "Well, we've got our own engineering program. It's called combat engineer." And I was like, "Hell you could, yeah. yeah!" the hook was just <laughs> yeah. like in the mouth, and, and off I go. Oh, oh yeah, it was. Yeah. it was, like, oh, yeah. That was an easy reel in. Especially yeah. when he said, well, we can give you anywhere you want to go. Where do you want to go? I was like, what's the furthest away from here you can possibly send me? And you, looking back in time now, like all the recruiters are looking at each other. Like, are you, are you serious? Like, are you serious? Yeah, like, well, we can send you immediately overseas, send me overseas. So I actually signed a contract to get immediately sent overseas. I know you wanted to, I just, I wanted to be, I wanted the experience. And you got it. I got it.
3: So putting on that Marine Corps uniform, how did that feel?
0: of all you had to go through to get it. I, and I think, you know, people select services for different reasons. And, and I think the difficulty was what the allure was. Now, granted, you know, you have an 18-year-old mind when you think about things being difficult and, and what it actually means. Um, but really, it to me, I think putting on the uniform just signified adulthood, like coming of age. Like I was out of my own now. Um, I have brand-new brothers and sisters, brand-new job, brand-new place of the world I'm going uh, brand new responsibilities. It, it was kind of turning the chapter and I, I knew that going in. That's what I, that's what I wanted. I wanted to get out and start living,
3: but it gave you what you wanted at that time.
0: It did. It absolutely did. I don't think I would have, unlike Gretchen here, I wouldn't have survived at college. I, I probably would have, you know, been a drop out after a year and a half and, and, uh, I probably wouldn't have been the best student whatsoever. So it gave me exactly what I needed. Um, it gave me a brotherhood. It gave me a sense of purpose. It, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit, but I, I got into the competition in arms program mm-hmm. and started doing some competitive shooting and I definitely have some some people in that competitive shooting environment within the Marine or rifle pistol team to to thank for I would say even being alive. And
3: showing you how to be a a grown up and an adult. Very and much a maturity lesson,
0: yes. Uh and you carried over a brotherhood that you continue to this day. As a matter of fact, uh, yesterday we had dinner with one of my old, uh, one of my old squad mates. So yes.
3: So Gretchen, what government job did you start in 06?
2: So my senior year in college, I had the opportunity to do an internship in the governor's press office. Um, you know. So having watched the west wing coming back to that for just a second the person that i admired the most was cj craig who was the press secretary so i thought hey i'm going to go work in the governor's press office or at least intern there and see what this thing is all about in real life and when i graduated they didn't have an opening in the press office but my boss at the time the press secretary said hey we don't have a spot but steve mccraw who was then the governor's oh yeah
3: I've heard the, of him <laughs>
2: the governor's director of homeland security uh he's got a spot, he needs a researcher and a writer. And I said, great, that sounds fantastic. And so I went and I interviewed with him. And he said, well, I think he used a football metaphor, like, we'd like to pick up your option. Okay. So I went to work in the governor's office of Homeland Security as a pretty small group of about five of us at the time.
3: How long had that been going like that? that position been going it was it fairly new homeland security in 06 that had to be
2: right so he the first governor's homeland security director came on in 04 and then he took over in 05. so nine eleven 11 kind of kick off just, absolutely yeah
3: started restructuring everything
2: right yeah. and so you know he picked up my option as you will and i went to work for him and so he actually took our group over with him when he became the dps director and that was, that was how I got to where I am today through a whole series of events, um, fortuitous in some ways, and I like to think that hard work had some, some part to play in it. But I've been very
3: fortunate. It had to, if you don't, you don't get into positions you're at, and, and without hard work. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of luck in anything. Sure. but There's a lot of work too, and in, in goals and resiliency too. Sure. How was how was uh, meeting with the director back then what was that like you know it was it was
2: an interesting interview just to begin with because we're met in the office in what's called the state insurance building but that's where most of the governor's staff works Uh, very nondescript building uh, and pretty casual interview on a friday and, and he he was open with me about what they were working on and I liked him, and he liked me, so here I am. It's intimidating. It really wasn't at the time. I don't think because I had been working in the governor's office some, and so I kind of knew the players and knew the posture and what that was, what an interview was supposed to look and like. You watch and West Wing, so you already prepared. exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did all my homework.
3: What was the most frustrating, frustrating part of that job?
2: I don't know that I had a frustrating part of that job. the The most frustrating thing that I've encountered in government services this stereotype that you know the government bureaucrats are just lazy and collecting a paycheck right but i've had the opportunity to work with an endless amount of very bright very hardworking, very forward-thinking individuals
3: and they have to be they have to be flexible to evolve too because everything sure. you know, things could change things usually look different every two to three to four years you bet and so the most exciting part of that job
2: I got to meet so many different people, and that happened to include President George W. Bush. Um, Part of what the Governor's Office of Homeland Security did was oversee the emergency management that the state responded to, and so the summer of 2008, we had a whole series of hurricanes back to back to back, and President Bush came down to the State Operations Center for a briefing on what was Hurricane Edward, I think, that ended up going to Louisiana, but it looked like it was going to go to Texas, and so... I had the opportunity to meet not only the president of the United States, but what I thought was equally as cool was his press secretary. And it was Dana Perino at the time. And I got to sit next to her and I talked to her for a little bit. And I said, you know, there was a time where I thought I wanted your job. And she looked back at me. She said, no, you don't.
3: (laughs) Oh, I can't imagine that job. I mean, I just watch, (laughs) I watch it now. And I remember uh, Dana. Now she's on, she's Mm -hmm. on Fox, I believe now. Yep. Uh, I remember watching, you know, she did a great, she did a great job. Absolutely. uh, But. Watching the tight ropes that are going on over the last probably six, seven years. Absolutely. It, it's, uh, yeah, I can't imagine that.
2: They call them flax for a reason.
3: Well, and the shelf life, too. The-
2: I think a lot of them, they do an impressive job, in my, in my estimation, of just taking whatever they can and making the best out of whatever's thrown at them that day. And you never know what that's going to be.
3: Yeah. And it's coming from both sides and you just have to, you have to do the best you can. Work right. with I mean, it, and a lot of times it is literally like polishing a turd, you know, and, and the information's coming in and you j- they're just presenting and they're representing the office.
2: And now that I've had more life experience and more work experience, I realized that Dana was exactly right. No, I don't want that job. No,
3: no. Aaron, back to you. You get out of the military.
0: You're taking another step in service can you tell us where you applied so before i actually settled on texas dps uh i was i was shooting competitively in the marine corps and i remember being out i want to say it was uh we called it the foul weather match it was the east coast uh they kind of designed it to place it in a bad november time frame so that way hopefully it rains hopefully it snows hopefully it it's horrible conditions and um It was not only an inner service there was Marine Corps Army uh, there. I don't remember any Air Force being there. Uh, But there were some...
2: You uh, should see the look on his face when he says that, too. It's definitely
0: a side-eye. No, we love all of our brothers and sisters. Um, There were... Officers there from the U.S. Secret Service, but I remember the Virginia State Police was there, and I remember some shooters from Chicago Police Department and some other sniper teams were were out there, and uh, that match was a traditional long-range match. It starts out at uh, 600 yards and goes to 1,000, so it's only on-your-belly shooting um and it wasn't really that bad of uh weather for the Val weather matches a little bit windy but uh it was good competitive fun i, I think i did fairly w- well on that one but um the chicago pd guys came over and they literally had a filled out um application and it gave me a t-shirt on the spot and they were like come on out to chicago um you know how long have you got left and i think i was at about the three and a half year mark so i was on that cusp of am i gonna stay am i gonna go and um so they, they had an application I started thinking about. It, and then I, I flash back to uh, thinking about grandfather and his service to Colleen Police Department. And, you know, do you do it now? Do you spend a career? I, what's the path? So I was a little bit confused. Well, Virginia State Police also came up to me. They, they saw Chico- what Chicago did. And uh, they also had a filled out uh, application. They they come over there and we start talking. So it really got the ball thinking, like, wait a second, I can I can get out. And I, I got to say, back, back then, the pay for – being in the Marine Corps was not, um, not real stellar. And you start peeking over the fence a little bit about salaries and benefits and future and retirement and all the rest of that, uh, that I could go home. I could go back to Texas. So I thought about it and, uh, started applying with Texas DPS and fortunately got selected on that. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a gut check to, to leave the Marine Corps. I think everybody exiting, uh, any one of the military services, you know, you, all of a sudden you just cut ties and you got your DD 214 in your hand and you're in your car and you're going home and there's like this vacuum sound behind you that, uh, it's just uncertainty. So I did, I packed up everything, went back to Texas and fortunately, uh, had a little bit of a break where I worked, uh, and IBM here in Austin worked on the line working on some uh, circuit board cards until the Academy picked me up and January of 97 went to DPS recruit school. Wow,
3: that's when I started DPDs, January 97. There you go. See, yeah. We were, yeah. yeah. So so this w- was There's the, a snowstorm whenever we is, went. I don't know if you – was there one? No. No, there was a snowstorm that picked up like a month later. Okay. Because I had to stay the night over uh, my buddy Randy's apartment because I couldn't make it home. <laughs> I was living in Greenville, Texas at the time, going to Dallas Academy, which, yeah. So – DPS, my bro- My brother, uh, he's a, a DPS intelligence lieutenant, uh, hmm. Paul Smith. Shout out, Paul. Um, <laughs> he started out in Hunt County, and he was literally trying to apply with DPS for – he applied like four or five times. And, yes. and it was – you know, he was actually about to give up, and he applied for Dallas PD, which I selfishly wanted him to just so we could be together on, on PD. And he was literally – I think he had an academy start date and then dps called did you have that experience like was it was it like a, a waiting game
0: it was a little bit of a waiting game um yes dps through 95 96 they kind of went through um i think there's a little bit of some state funding shenanigans going on but it, it was a little bit of a lockout period so i know whenever i went through i think we had a little over four thousand applicants for 100 position so it was uh It was a little bit of a nail-biter. I wasn't necessarily sure if I was going to get it. I started looking at Austin Police Department a little bit at the time. Um, I think I went as far as to submit the application, but by the time they processed it, uh, I I got confirmation through through DPS. Um, I did a few of the things that were recommended by DPS. I went on some ride-alongs. I kind of went to the office, tried to learn a little bit um, before getting the job, so at least my face was recognized by the time the background hit. The trooper knew who I was, and I wasn't a you know complete foreign body showing up to to absorb one of their positions so started trying on stetsons getting, <laughs> yeah. that, getting that look down make getting the hat we, we, right. we do love our hats no they're
3: beautiful they're no they're great hats uh you know the only time that <laughs> was ever worn in dallas is uh the old captain fritz homicide unit he had them wear the Stetsons. all and, the Stetsons, yeah, yeah. i don't they' they look that's a good look well, not everybody can pull it off. If not they, everybody can pull it off. No, if no. they saw me in one of those hats, they <laughs> they would probably change the policy on on wearing it like that. So, so you get out and move, start moving up in Austin, which is it is the mecca of DPS. And yeah.
0: how was that like for you? Uh, well, as far as starting off the career or just kind of coming back, starting so, off the career and just starting off new life, starting off the career aside from recruit school. Um, everybody in dps recruit school kind of wants to end up home everybody wants to go back to the big meccas austin dallas houston those things. san antonio seem to be you know the big area but when there's a hundred people you kind of got to duke it out a little bit uh so i i rolled the cards and i rolled the dice played cards there you, there you go Guess you can't roll cards And I selected Region 4, which was the Odessa to El Paso region because nobody wanted to go there. Nobody was putting in their wish list cards for Region 4 because it was out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody had family. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go out there and maybe they'll give me kind of a good selection out there. I wouldn't end up, as everybody knows with DPS, you can end up in a town of 500, you know, with where it's an hour drive to the closest Walmart. And I just wanted a decent sized town and I wanted a chunk of the interstate because I wanted to do a little bit of criminal interdiction. So, sure enough, it worked out for me. Um, the the captain at the time, Captain Baker, who later became Deputy director of Baker, Yeah. And uh, he comes in, and after, at the end of the academy, he's like, well, who are my people that put in for Region 4? Who wanted to come here versus the ones that got dumped in here? And I got to raise my hand. He said, where do you want to go? And I said, well, I, I keep hearing that Odessa is kind of like a little Houston, so I want Odessa. And he looks at me kind of weird and says, you got Odessa. So, off to Odessa, I went for uh, my first highway patrol job. Which was a great place to be in highway patrol. Um, there's Why is a, that? It has a. You've got the city of Odessa, but then everybody that's familiar with Odessa, you've got the unincorporated West Odessa area that is just full of roughnecks. It is. Uh, it's unincorporated, so it has a little bit of the county. The county sheriff's office out there. I got to say, on a on a payday Friday, is overran with calls. There, it's it's fight city. It's pursuit city. It was it was very active. So, as a highway patrolman, you got. A dose of being on the interstate and I-10 working the accident, doing the normal highway patrol thing, but on Friday, Saturday night, you also get to answer calls with the sheriff's office. So you ended up going to house calls, which I'm sure we have a lot of listeners from Dallas Police Department that are probably rolling their eyes about you know the role of a highway patrolman and everything, You know, get off the toll road and all that. I get it, um, but there are stations out there where you are actively supporting uh, the sheriff's office or the local PD and I was fortunate to end up at one of those so I got a mixture of House calls, a mixture of county calls, a mixture of the interstate, interdiction, crashes, you name it. So it was a wonderful place to start your career. It's like no country for old men out there. That it was. Movie, it, uh, you, you, know. you can drop off the Caprock uh, there west of Odessa, and you are in no man's land. At the time, it was no radio, no anything. You are, you are a lone ranger out there. You, whatever you stir up, you better be able to solve it. Did you get much interdiction uh,
3: actions that you wanted?
0: I did. I had a <laughs> I had a close I had a close friend of mine that kind of showed me the ropes. Who later went on to uh, Border Patrol. Shout out to Carlos Ortiz, and uh, he showed me how to do a, a little bit of interdiction. And I started getting a few loads, a few more loads, and uh, it was good. Uh, a lot of the loads coming out of the El Paso area, passing through, you know, on their way to Dallas, um, was a large portion of them. Uh, but yes, got got some good criminal interdiction. in
3: yeah, there's no drugs in Dallas, man. I'm no, no enough.
0: drugs whatsoever.
3: I made that up. So, yeah, and just just for uh, theatric purposes here for the podcast, you made that up. <laughs> Wait, anybody <laughs> that's listened to any other episodes knows that Dallas has no shortage of drugs. Uh, so, Gretchen's there in Austin. She's living her best life. Absolutely. Neck deep in politics. Yep. And he's out in No Country for Old Men uh, <laughs> area. I want to get into when your lives intersected. Okay. and And I was told there's a funny story about how this happened, so I want to hear it. I think the listener wants to hear it.
2: There is. It's true. So uh, as the story goes, one of us remembers things (laughs) differently from the other. Uh, So where I remember is after he had gotten reassigned back to Austin headquarters, and there was a Homeland Security conference in San Antonio. I had moved over to DPS by that time. And went down to the Homeland Security Conference in San Antonio, and I had heard his name before, well-spoken of, and uh, went to his border security presentation because he was working border issues. And went up to him afterwards and introduced myself, or so I thought, and said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm Gretchen Essel and I worked for Steve McCraw and you know really enjoyed your presentation and I kind of walked away from that interaction thinking what just happened because boy something just happened Uh, however the other side of the story
0: she did not remember meeting me whatsoever so the real story on how we met is um, so flash forward to my career I, I worked narcotics for a bit of time after doing some interdiction ended up in El Paso for about 10 years um, picked up Texas Ranger, did all the things a Ranger does, working homicide stuff. Uh, the border started kind of exploding around 2007, 2008. Um, a lot of the cartels were absorbing each other and battling over territory. I happened to be in El Paso, um, so my career took an interesting turn where uh, we formed the Border Security Operations Center. Um, we started doing tactical missions uh, in conjunction with the newly absorbed full-time DPS SWAT team. So anyway, I end up back at Austin, and I'm briefing up some of our tactical capabilities and what we're doing on the border as far as rural interdiction, You know, coming in on helicopters, trying to disrupt uh, cartel operations. And um, there was a change in leadership at DPS at the time, and there was a particular director. I won't even bother to mention him, but uh, he was not a fan of Director McCraw, Steve McCraw at the time, coming from uh, the governor's office. So I was told to go down with him to a homeland security committee meeting downtown at, at at the legislature. And basically what I was told behind closed doors is testify against Steve McCraw. Yeah, whoa, that's uh that's really what you want to hear, you know, Fun as a, as a, as a young in. captain is to to be yeah, testifying against your future boss. So uh, anyway, long story short, we're in the committee meeting room and if anybody's ever heard Steve McCraw talk, he, he knocks it out of the park every time. There, there's nothing. like I remember turning around to that director at the time and telling him, like, I've got nothing. That was stellar. Uh, there's nothing I'm going to be able to say to, to refute that. He, he did a good job. Like, he could just drop the mic right now. Uh, that director got a little bit aggravated at me. And uh, anyway, we leave the committee meeting. And I, th- I think, only she knows, but I think Steve McCraw knew that I was there to kind of testify against him. But I didn't. And so he kind of comes up to me and he shakes my hand and we talk a little bit and everybody knew the rumor that he was going to come aboard as the DPS director. And uh, I looked behind him and there's Gretchen. So immediately I'm like, okay. I got to meet this lady. You know, it was like, you could, the, the, the sparks were kind of like flying out. Um, at least on my end, I thought the sparks were going. So I lean, like, I, I literally kind of lean past Steve McCraw. Uh, shoved him aside. Yeah. I just, I just shoved <laughs> him aside. You know, he was in his nice blue me, suit. Please. I said, uh, excuse me here. She was to the right of him. And I lean over and I, and I shake hands like, I'm I'm Aaron Grigsby. Nice to meet you. And she literally looks at me for about a half second, looks back at Steve, kind of shakes hands sideways at me like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Gretchen. Continues talking with Steve, and then they both leave the committee meeting. And I'm watching them walk off, and I was like, well, that was you know that, that's a sunken ship there. That just crashed and burned. Um, so anyway, I didn't I didn't think much of it until she reapproaches me, which I thought was a joke. I thought somebody put her up to it and said, like, hey, you know, Aaron's been trying to chase you. And so she walks up to me at, after I give a presentation. So I thought that second interaction was somebody's joke, like somebody's putting her up to this. So, She's yeah. sitting here with a look on her face. The- <laughs>
2: in my defense, <laughs> when I'm in work mode, I'm in work <laughs> mode. And yeah. that's very much where I was when I was with Steve McCraw down at the Capitol. I'm the, I'm
3: the same way. Kristen, Kristen, detective green my, my fiance, she's sitting here too she could attest to that yep <laughs> i do have to get serious at some moments and yeah you're sitting there with the future director i would imagine it's not time for flirty and and uh exactly. actually showing interest in
2: there's a time and place
3: handsome trooper so she didn't even remember me yeah <laughs>
2: handsome ranger captain
3: at that point oh Handsome ranger, ranger captain mm-hmm. okay so when did y'all get married Start started dating 2010 right we started okay. dating
2: in 2010 and then we got engaged in like the end of 2012 and got married in 2014
3: so at that point you know i was going to kind of get into you you already have an idea of the law enforcement community cuz you're neck deep in the government side and in austin you already you already know kind of what to expect but but once you actually got into it did you start seeing it's This is a little different. This is a little bit more, this is a little different than what I was expecting.
2: I don't know that it was different than I was expecting at the time. So, you know, for the first six or seven years of our marriage, he was at DPS headquarters, right? Which is different from your typical law enforcement job. He's not out on patrol answering calls, dealing with all the shooting and scooting and stuff. I don't know that I truly felt like an officer's wife until he left DPS, retired from there, and went to work on patrol with Round Rock PD.
3: Okay, but what you, Aaron, did you have you were commanding? What, you were, what were you commanding at the
0: time? It was the Border Security Operations Center. So uh, yes, we were down at the border a lot. It was you know a month gone at the time. Come back two weeks, gone another month. Uh, we were doing was the startup of the tactical missions down there so it was a lot of uh, embedding working with uh, the DPS SWAT team and literally being out in the brush most of the time was in the Rio Grande Valley because that was what the hot area was at the time but embedding in LPOPs listening posts observation posts and uh, having you know a couple of QRF birds over the horizon parked in a, in a pasture somewhere ready to go respond whenever they would do the drive across loads and everybody and in the big pursuits and throw cow traps out the window and yeah. shoot at the police and everything. So it was, a uh, again, like the wild West and it was, uh, it was fun times. Yeah. It's
3: still that way right now. My, yep. my brothers had me go down there in, mm-hmm. in uh, two and three weeks stints and yeah, it don't matter rank it, or nope. you're down there working that border and it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad right now. Um, What, Gretchen, at what point, what were you doing in your role whenever y'all start dating and got married in 2012?
2: So when we started dating, I was working, still doing we had just transitioned over from the governor's office and so I was still doing some Homeland Security work and then uh, a few months later I moved into the Office of Government Relations at DPS and that was where I really started getting more heavy into true legislative work. And dealing with, you know, different pieces of legislation that was coming up and constituent casework and things like that that DPS routinely gets calls about. Um, By the time we got married, I actually moved over into the Texas Senate uh, to get some in-house legislative experience and was working for what was then the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Rural Affairs, and Homeland Security, which is quite the mouthful. And it sounds like it may not have a lot of connection, but when you look at the nexus of the properties that are being, um, that have the greatest impact from border security and the homeland security connection to that, that was, that was how that committee all fit together.
3: So Aaron, you got into a shooting in 2004, correct? And yes. that was the first time? That was, was my first. first, yes. Okay. How did that, can you, can you tell a little,
0: little synopsis of, of what happened if you can? I I can, I can. Um, So anybody that, regardless of agency who has been uh, working around narcotics, uh, narcotics role, detective, whatever, doing a little bit of UC surveillance, uh, we can all, we can all understand where I'm going on this. So we would have our normal caseloads you know you wake up early you do your trash runs you do all your normal savannah everything that you always do um for doing any kind of narcotics work well what we tried to do we had a good group of guys and we tried to kind of cleave off friday into what we jokingly called fun friday and we tried to do something proactive whether it was wrap up a quick little case or uh something like that but one of the the great things that we used to do which was really fun it really did net some some fun and comical results is we would go through the raw crime stoppers tips not the not the collated ones, the ones that have been like fed through, like literally the stack of like 200 of them and just sit there and flip pages on like a Friday morning until you found the juicy one. And, and we all know what that means from a detective. It's like the he leaves at this time. It's it's under the cra- he, he, he stashes it under the crack in the master bedroom. It's the second plank to the right. And Someone he always pissed off. Ex yep, gave yep, him that yep, yeah. yep. Somebody that just overdoes it on the information where you're like, OK, now this is a legit and easy target for a fun Friday. So we did our fun Friday, and um, the tip was guy always leaves his uh, closed garage and a beige Cadillac um, between 11 and 12, goes and sells Coke to anybody and everybody. I mean, it was just a nice, fat, juicy tip. So sure enough, we set up surveillance at 10 o'clock, and I'm in like eleven twenty-two on cue, garage door comes up, gold Cadillac packs out. We're like, okay, we're, we're off to the races. We follow them around a little bit. And uh, he pulls up and he parks next to a couple of 18-wheelers in um, a small dirt lot outside El Paso. And uh, we just go ahead and do a quick approach on him. He had, I don't know, good size couple of... Like three, four ounces of cocaine, solid hit. You know, um, especially for Fun Friday. Oh yeah, yeah. Fun Friday. Yeah, you know, you're first degree felony. You got the delivery. Um, both everybody, the, the truck driver's rolling over. He's rolling over. Everybody's rolling over. You're kind of like internally high five and like this was this is easy. This is an hour and a half worth of work. And um, you know, we 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 got something. So, uh, well, immediately he says, you know, hey, I, I don't want to go to jail. I know it's first degree felony. I don't want to go to jail. And we all know where this story's going. Okay, well, what can you do for me? Well, I can get you at least a key right now, right now. So anybody that's been in narcotics, we've all heard that story before. Sure, you can get a key. But, you know, we're talking to him. And sure enough, um, we we get some recorded calls with his his source. And the guy's on his way with his key. So we're like, great. We set up on what we thought was a uh, fairly mundane rear of a uh, shopping center, uh, kind of a good L-shaped rear of a shopping center. Uh, type of a thing your, your typical bus signal take the ball cap i mean it's it's, it's so stereotypical we, we've all been through it if you've ever been in any kind of narcotics work well the guy shows up in a three-quarter ton single cab um it's a dodge or gmc i think it might have been a gmc goes car to car with our new friend uc that that just had a thing so he gives the, the audible takes off the the ball cap and everything well in, in like flynn we, we we go and uh try to box in a three-quarter ton pickup truck that I got to give him credit he saw us coming a little bit he, he was he was a little bit wily he wasn't caught completely unaware so he saw the the units coming towards him and had already put it in reverse um, we play kind of smash up cars for a little bit and one of uh, my partners gets out of what we thought was a vehicle containment uh, to circle around while the guy pushes one of the cars out of the way uh, sees him and I mean white smokes the tires uh, towards Thomas Wilson, one of the uh, sergeant investigators. And from my perspective, I, don't, I was already out of the vehicle. From my perspective, uh, Thomas got crunched. What I didn't know is he literally did, like, this ninja dive back into his Dodge uh, Durango, the old uh, the old Dodge Durango pickup trucks. He, he, like, ninja dived in it. But from my perspective, he just got ran over and flattened. Uh, so I, I fired. And uh, any police officer knows that you know if you're shooting and yes it was through the back of the cab into the back shooting somebody in the in the back is never going to play out well for for your career it's not not a fun event uh so yeah took me to federal court uh everything else but i think kind of flashing forward why this is important for what i think we're going to talk about with uh with round rock is my partner and i were in the car together uh when the when the bus signal went down we thought we were doing great police work we had don't laugh we had duct taped an old digital camera to the a pillar of the undercover car on the passenger side so i mean we're like layering the tape up right where the dash meets the a pillar on the inside so we're trying to we're trying to create an in-car cam so we can capture the actual event go down uh the exchange the whole nine yards well with the crash up bang up that this guy happened with this three-quarter ton that basically hit every car we had trying to do the vehicle containment it knocked that digital camera onto the floorboard and so we caught maybe the first 30 seconds of the event um probably did capture the the gunfire i i I don't know what all it captured but it, it ended up on the floorboard and it just sat there and recorded carpet uh so obviously it sits there for 30 45 minutes till supervisors get there sun was going down i had a lieutenant at the time that was like we got to get photos now keep in mind this is the days of the nokia there wasn't like everybody didn't have cell phone cameras and all that kind of stuff so the razor Yeah. yeah so lieutenant looks around he see what does he see in the floorboard of one of our cars he's like great a digital camera picks it up all he sees is gray from the carpet of an overturned camera and everything rewinds a little bit more gray, rewinds a little bit more, more gray, rewind gray. Okay. So this must be good for me to just go ahead and completely rewind and record over. Yeah. So talk about like ethics one oh one. me and my partner were the only two people on the planet that knew that we had tried to record a incident that now captured a shooting. And then as we see the lieutenant out there recording with it, we're both looking at each other like, no, 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 no. Like it we're immediately we're locking eyes and we're reading each other. We're having like this telepathy moment uh, out there at the scene. Like he just recorded over that. He just recorded over everything and he did. So we had to report that. Uh, my partner was going through his own shooting thing at the time. And he was also going through civil court on shooting somebody. So it was just a, it was a really bad sandwich. Uh, I went through, uh, there's still, you can look up, there's still federal court proceedings on it for me going on some sort of quote murdering rampage for this poor guy who was, you know, merely dropping off some baking soda. It wasn't baking soda. <laughs> um, but anyway, it, it, it left a, I'd say a bad taste, but that's really undercutting it. It, it wasn't what I wanted to go through in a shooting, um, having all that, being questioned in court, being the officer that, quote, supposedly erased the whole shooting, it, it, it was – you can all imagine, anybody listening out there, it, it was not a fun event to go through. Um, the defense attorneys just had a field day with me.
3: How did that shooting change you? I mean, you're sitting there telling me that – and I and I know a lot of people that have gone through the the brutal, whether it's media coverage or – the roller coaster of you know defense attorneys their role is to make us look bad and yes. to, you know and that's in you know that we got to expect that
0: but how did that change you that was my first shooting so it was an absolute roller coaster uh like I said I I, I thought I had believed in my heart that Thomas Wilson my partner I know I mean he and I were brothers I thought he had gotten crushed between two vehicles so after it was all said and done and now thomas is alive uh i'll be honest it, i felt guilty because the suspect only made it to the hospital and you go through this whole like i didn't do my job good enough i was my marksmanship not good enough what you know thomas is alive but i thought he was dead and i remember sitting on the tailgate of thomas's vehicle after we peeled everything apart and and crying and i apologized to you, thomas for like i felt like everything was my fault i i thought he had died and then he like how he resurrected you know jesus style he's in front of me talking to me about he's okay it's okay um but it, it, i just remember the roller coaster of absolute emotions on i'm here i survived i'm in a shooting for the, now the evidence is destroyed thomas is alive. like it was just it was being on a ferris wheel that just would not stop matter seconds of yes going yeah
3: well, how did you 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 know you, how did you cope with that? I mean, that was a different kind of a yeah. Hey,
0: you really you really want to know? That? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So well, no, go, I'll,
3: I'll go ahead and stop the mic. Go ahead and tell me off air.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's about that's about where this is going to go, and I'm going to try to not give you the explicit tag, but I may just go ahead and go for the gusto. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so I was doing uh, undercover work. So I had I had a group of friends. Well, one of my close friends that was outside of the law enforcement circles, which I got to say keeps you a little bit. Yes. Sane, having friends outside of the echo chamber that is law enforcement. Uh, he was a UPS driver, a turned UPS manager, um, great guy, uh, Pete Carrasco. He'll probably never listen to this podcast. But uh, Pete and I were close friends, and he knew. Um, whenever the, the stories hit the media, uh, I remember him calling my phone. He was like, it's you, isn't it? And I was like, yes. Uh, he was one of my only outside law enforcement friends that knew what I was doing at the time. Because you know, not everybody grossed their go to everybody stop growing goatees and ponytails. It just gives you away as a cop. But anyway, um, so, yeah, I was working plain clothes. DEA just issues them at the – They, they do? Yeah, yeah. They just, like <laughs> slap it on you. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: he did have some sweet hair, though. There's pictures. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, maybe I'll – I want to see those pics. I, I do have <laughs> some pretty nice ones. But anyway, um, it was like a Thursday uh, – it was Friday, whenever that, that, that happened. And I got to say, DPS did not – have the level of support that I think we're going to get into and why my experience in this was a night and day uh, difference, flash forwarding to uh, the incident round rock. uh, It was nothing. I just, I dropped off into nothingness over a Saturday. And uh, if it wasn't for Pete, Pete pulled me out of it. And I mean, I'm just sitting at home head spinning. Am I going to get prosecuted? Am I like like the million things are going through your head? And I was not Married, I didn't have a girl, like, I, it was just me sitting at the house. So Pete grabs me and he was like, Come on, man. Uh, I've lined up a, a double date for us. <laughs> That's the last thing I wanted. I did not want to go on. You, a double to, date. you weren't ready to people. I, like I know kind of I was kid. not. But you know, Pete was just—he was trying. He was—he was like, "You got to get out. Like, let's get. Quit thinking about. Like, let's let's go. Let's get out." So I did. I went on this double date, biggest disaster ever. <laughs> so it's a good um, story, though. It is a good story. She knows the story, so I'm not blindsiding her. That we, we still laugh about. it I think we even laughed last night about it again. Um, so we go to this nice restaurant in in El Paso and, um, it would, the double date was somebody he'd been dating and then her niece and, you know, it started out nice, you know, table of four, we're, we're talking, but instantly the date that I'm on with, she, let's just say a little bit high maintenance for me. And, um, as Gretchen will say, sometimes I can be a little bit quiet my head was still mean, I'm still on the ferris wheel me I'm, I'm still on that ferris wheel going 90 miles an hour and uh she starts kind of lighting into me for for being too quiet and then all of a sudden she's like I'll bet you're just a boring guy aren't you I'll bet you've never done anything that has been even remotely exciting and Pete my friend is like I see his eyes like getting large and everybody's kind of lo- looking at the dynamic in the table and my, my uh my undercover persona was that I Worked for Dot, and, you know, I had the Tech state agency, the state agency, you know, I got some counterfeit Dot cards and all the rest of that. So I just, you know, I work on doing road maintenance and everything. And she's just on lots of boring. Job. You're just a boring person, but you've never done anything exciting. So I still remember asking her like, well, what is it that you do? Oh, I'm an investment banker. And I'm like, well, that sounds riveting. Uh, that sounds action packed and everything. So, I mean, we're, just, we're now actively picking a fight with each other at the table. And she just, she's in on it. She's like, she picks up her phone and she's like, well, I'm just going to call somebody who's a little more exciting than you. And, uh, you know, I'll just continue this day. Pete, to his credit, in the middle of a very crowded restaurant on a Saturday night, he stands up so fast that the chair does like three flips behind him, almost like crashes into another table. And he stands up and he points at her and he says, you are a bitch. Come on, Aaron, get in the car, we're going. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm looking back and forth at everybody. I'm like, really? really? We're about to stay We're going. We're going. We're putting
3: the roll back into the basket. Yep. To, we, we, yep. It, yeah. we,
0: we stood up and we left him at the table. Sorry to say. And uh, we got in his truck. And I remember laughing for like an hour and a half with it. All we did was drive around the streets of El Paso laughing. And it was, it was the best thing that I probably could have ever had happen to me. But it was nothing that the department did for me it was maybe he planned friend.
3: that he knew she was an asshole and she wanted to, <laughs> he, wanted to he, says, did, he knew maybe. it was going to turn
0: into that and maybe make you did. laugh well there you go right. so that was my coping mechanism was a good friend
4: i will say i think that it's really important to have that perspective of non-law enforcement friends yes outside because yeah. as law enforcement we do have a tendency to really amp each other up and yes. get into this one mindset and you lose perspective of what it's like so i think that having a friend like that that can like take you out of it and do that even if going on that double date wasn't necessarily what you wanted at no. that time <laughs> is a real like something that we all kind of need and need to keep in our lives
0: yeah he was he was great he really did pull me through that um it was absolutely critical that i had a friend like that and that experience it wasn't necessarily what i would have envisioned for myself but it worked and we laughed and I survived the weekend on on it.
3: Now some ATO listeners gonna be laughing about that. <laughs> Many years later it's, it's actually funny. We're we're gonna we're gonna get into some you know, some other topics that maybe aren't as, as uh humorous, but um so whenever you get rolling, you had that experience and, and it obviously it 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 worked out, I'm guessing. I mean it, or it worked itself
0: out. Not, it worked itself yeah. out. I think is probably the best way of saying it. Yeah, you know, there was some angst. There was some legal proceedings. Uh, yeah, there was there was a year and a half worth of hell, hell. Yeah, it was absolute hell. Well, that
3: you know we that was an o4 and and the years after that. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just oh, I mean, God, the, this poor guy's. And we're going to get into something that happened in twenty twenty one. A year, you know, right after uh, a major worldwide incident that 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 law enforcement's put under yeah. a microscope again and under a negative lens you know the city of dallas uh, we have some we have some guys right now that are getting dragged through it and yeah. you' literally going through hell and it's just you know it, it there's you know when we started in the 90s police were actually respected and and you know in some ways beloved i mean there were some things here and there but nothing like that we see now no. in no. the attack and how quick to assume and quick to attack that uh, that society, you know, we have to go through that now on top of the normal dangers. So Gretchen, you've heard that story I have. many times and you're sitting there grinning about the failed double date. Oh, so it's, it's, it's actually a good thing that double date didn't work out. <laughs> it so out we we, me, we, we wouldn't be, yeah, it worked out for you. I want to get into the know he had had already gone through that and you start getting yourself immersed and he didn't necessarily he wasn't in that role anymore that 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 he was as a narcotics detective and my brother has introduced me to enough uh folks in in dps narcotics and actually i worked several cases with them and i gotta say that in some cases dps narcotics helped me more than my own narcotics unit and they're phenomenal and uh yeah i love those guys they do Uh, a
2: lot of things really well
3: oh hey trash runs (laughs) <laughs> did that that's a, i yeah, we start doing yeah, that's a real thing and that's an effective. It's very effective. Very surprisingly eff- effective. Very effective uh technique. Um I want to get into as your career and your marriage you started evolving. What role did you take you were you were basically commanding and you were you were in the Rangers, right? Yes. And I I eventually want to get on a, a an active Texas Ranger uh I've, that's in the works. Uh, I know several just because of the long history that that the Rangers have. I mean, hell, you know, come on. Even Hitler, knew, he was aware that of true. the Texas Rangers. That's true. Because <laughs> <laughs> when the Rangers, no, like going back to the story of when the, they heard that, the, I the, think that's a good thing. No, no, no the, the the Rangers were getting dropped in in Normandy, yes, that's true. And he he thought it was the Texas that Rangers. True. That's oh, how. That's, right. that's the legend like that the, the legend goes that. Yes. Uh, that's a real thing yeah, it was a
0: real thing he was getting ready for anti-cavalry and a bunch of guys to come in with six guns that is actually a real thing it was yeah. back when the u.s army rangers were standing up and all he heard was ranger and yeah he assumed the texas rangers were coming to the beaches of normandy it's kind of comical it's pretty badass though i mean that, no that's really badass, cool right?
3: and, and i'm man i, I know a lot of, i know a lot of current rangers now but i just know that the there's a lot of red tape of sitting down with somebody from dps when it comes to doing these kind of shows Active, and, yes yeah and sure. i and i i completely understand and i, I respect that because there is a you know especially in this day and age and and if anybody listens to these shows y'all have listened to a lot of them uh i have rules that i keep hold myself to of being respectful to everything mm-hmm. you know and i want i want everybody here C- commander gretchen aaron um i want everybody here to walk away from this room feeling like they've been respected and they've got their story out the way they wanted it to be, and 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 to be honest and truthful. And that's just I'm not gonna. This isn't Underground Cop 2.0. We're not gonna sit and crap on anybody. But that's why I've not had uh, somebody from DPS on yet because I'm my brother and he's a lieutenant there now. It's just it's hard to do, but it. But it, I want that. I want it to happen. And I'm glad I actually get to, to uh, hear some DPS stories from you. <laughs> Because you're not uh, beholden to that red tape? No. But no? No. So when did you leave? I left in 2020. Okay. So you already had eight-ish years? Yeah. We had
2: been married for six years. Yep. Yeah.
3: Okay. Six years. So how long did,
0: uh, I mean, what, what roles did you take on in that six years? Uh highway patrolman obviously we had the stories about Odessa the interdiction troop which was a specialized position that they no longer have anymore I wish they wish they did Uh, but that was a competitive process for for doing the CLE interdiction trooper so I did that I went into DPS narcotics at the time it wasn't necessarily CID That was back when it was a little bit more delineated and then went into the Texas Rangers uh, after that so several roles uh, exiting command roles uh, at Austin headquarters, which I think anybody will tell you, that's definitely removed from the streets. Yeah. You're, um, what, what What's the what's the, what's the saying that n- no good decisions come from a chair with little wheels on it? But yet I was apparently cranking <laughs> out a bunch of decisions with chair with little wheels on it. And then, um, so that was part of the reason why I actually wanted to go back. I wanted to go back and go back to the streets. I wanted to retire. I wanted to take off the command stuff off the shoulders and just go back to being a cop yeah
4: when you know you talked about going through your 2004 incident and how negative that was for you and what an impact that was for you going forward looking at your law enforcement career both continuing in the same position that you were in and then changing positions in the future how do you think that impacted how you approach your job going forward
0: that's a deep question so not just my career but i think as officers as all of us we we come out a little bit young uh, lacking probably a little bit of life experience Uh, maybe some of us come from the military and a little bit overly structured maybe some of us come from a college background a little bit understructured i don't know uh, you know doing keg stands and stuff Uh, I, i think until you start gaining life experience whether it's Marriages, divorces, breakups, loss of family members, um, and then you start seeing some of the stuff that we all see on the road that that really starts shaping and aging you, uh, it changes you. So I think as your career progresses, you have a better grasp at how you want to deal with people, how um, you don't want the same mistakes made. I think even Commander Grubbs, before we even started, was talking about uh, mistakes made with her we all have those mistakes that we learn from um, so I think whenever you stack on some critical incidents and it doesn't have to be a shooting it can be a bad right it could be there's a number of things that I think we in law enforcement uh, could categorize as a critical incident it does not have to be a shooting uh, my wife will tell you that one of the one of the things that after I went through the the shooting and the EMDR with Dr. Glenn's office uh, one of the things that popped up in my mind was a fatality accident uh, that killed an absolutely stunningly beautiful 19 year old girl. Um, truck did like a half roll, ejected her perfectly out the window, and she was, as I rolled up on scene, probably 60 seconds after it happened, uh, angelic. Absolutely angelic. No, no, no. It, it's like you should be be able to nudge her and say, get off the road, like you're, quit playing, get off the road. Um, but it's things like that. We all have this trauma. So I say all that to say, You learn. You you learn and I think you start developing tools that you didn't expect to have and that no academy can teach you, that no classroom can teach you. You have to learn, experience, make mistakes, have things happen to you that are unfortunate and, and then start applying those. If you truly care to be in a leadership position, you've got to and apply those things.
2: One of the things that you've talked about from that incident specifically is learning the empathy aspect of it. Empathy, yes. Learning how to be human with another person that you may be delivering the worst news of their life to. And I think you can carry that empathy into leadership roles in a different way than you would have if you were just fresh off the streets. Do you think that changes your
4: leadership capabilities and almost helps you guide, hopefully helps you guide future like younger officers through their critical incidents or even into making better decisions that you learn the hard way and hopefully they don't have to.
0: Absolutely. Um, There is a certain amount of gravitas uh, that you get when people understand what your career is or you work around others and and you mutually experience things and, and survive things, I guess you can say for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. There, you speak with more credibility. Whether it's upward to a chain of command, whether it's downward, whether it's peer level, it doesn't necessarily matter. You, you, yeah. There is a level of authority and a level of reach back that you have into a past that you can, you, can empathize. You can understand better what it is they're going through, what they've experienced, at least like a degree. But then I say that to say I listen to the podcast of like. The Navy SEAL with Cairo, I'm like I. That's so far out of my depth of understanding that I can't even I can't imagine what somebody like that has got a career of bouncing around in his head.
3: Yeah, and yeah, that, those guys, and uh, you're talking about Will Chesney, yes, that episode. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty amazing sitting with him. And but then on the flip side, though, Will has got that experience, and, and his I mean he is the best of the best, in and being in that SEAL unit. And in his trade, but there's also he may have a hard time really comprehending what we go through daily for 20 plus 30 years, you know, and, and and, you know, and it's just it there's trauma. There's I think And and I'm glad you brought that up about it doesn't have to be a critical incident. It doesn't have to be a newspaper worthy incident to just pile on you. I mean, I get honestly, I can see like a changing of your eyes when you're talking about that that 19 year old i mean it's the cumulative small pinpricks that you take home you're going home to to gretchen when did you first did you i want to get into like when the the spouses and and the perspective Mm -hmm. because we really haven't dove into that in this episode and and, or this not just this episode but this podcast um we we had on Crystal Almeida and her wife and her deal and I you know that was that was a, I'm not sure if y'all have heard that episode yet but it's her just started this morning. Oh man, you get get some get those tissues ready. Um, it, you start noticing a change. How did how how are y'all communicating? I mean, did you, you can you talk about the changes you start noticing?
2: So, where my story may be a little bit different is that by the time we got married, he had already been on for. 15 years uh maybe not quite 15 but for a while and so he was already a somewhat seasoned officer so he had gone through i think a lot of those personal changes that come through your first few years of experience as an officer Uh, but i think one thing that he had learned through his life experience is that he has to communicate with me that it's not just him going to work and compartmentalizing and coming home and shielding me from the horrible days that he may have had the horrible calls that he may have gone to and again we didn't really get into that life until he retired from dps and went to work for round rock and started answering your your routine patrol calls but i i am eternally grateful and i think that's one of the reasons that we have made it through the specific incident from 2021 as well as we have is that we we communicate about it because he would come home and he he would tell me about some of the rough calls that he had been going through and i you know processed those with me instead of feeling like He had to shield me from them. And I think that's what a lot of officers uh, maybe in their early days do with their spouses. And I think that's so detrimental. And the one thing that I would impress on any officer that's getting into this world or getting into a marriage, whichever comes first, is you know that person that you married. You can trust them. They can handle it. You have got to communicate with them. Do you think that on some level with officers
4: when they're not when they're coming home and not sharing it's almost like because at some point they think they're fine like it takes a while before you realize Maybe. that you're not fine so when you're coming home and you're not sharing it i think at some point they kind of realize it and officers just don't want to share it with their families but you come home and you think you are fine like to you you're fine this was a routine call and it's not you may be angry about something else Mm -hmm. Or it may be something else that you're bothered about. And then you start picking on that and you start picking a fight about that or you start focusing on that because you think you're fine as an officer. And it's not until you really have a lot of introspection or you go through that communication as a couple where you can really start pulling out the fact that, no, it's not, I'm not fine and I really do
2: need to share these things. Yeah. Or or I'm not actually blowing up about the pan that's in the sink. It's about something much larger and much uh, much deeper than that pan that's in the sink. And it, it may take a little bit to unpack that, but I think it's really important to do.
3: Well, Gretchen, how did you... I mean, when you were receiving that feedback when, you're, when he's coming home, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you in a minute of how what got you to the point to be a better communicator. But when you were receiving this basically talking about his crappy day and and to a lot of just people that aren't in this field very traumatic day a lot of people Mm -hmm. their worst part of their week is getting cut off in traffic Mm -hmm. and and this man he's coming home and he's telling you about some incidents that he worked how did you process that
2: And I think that's where maybe I'm in a little bit of a different position again as a lot of other officer spouses is that I do – I'm not an officer myself, but I have worked in the world of law enforcement for 15, 16 years. And so I've heard the stories. And so I'm maybe somewhat desensitized to that level of depravity that officers sometimes encounter. And so I I had some moments where – you know, we trained jujitsu for a while and so there would there's one specific incident that he had dealt with that it's always the kid incidents that are the worst, right? Those are always the ones that stick with you the worst and he came home and he was telling me about this one incident and so I went to jujitsu that day and I was amped up. Like, I just want to choke somebody out right now because this happened and I'm mad about it. And so I think um, understanding what they're going through, making sense of that and understanding what you're going through and then how to find a healthy outlet for it. I think all of those together are just absolutely critical.
3: Aaron, being tough Marine, seasoned <laughs> uh, Ranger, you know, true Texan. How did you develop those skills to, to communicate? Cause
0: it's not, I'm, hell, I'm still working on it myself. A lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes, a lot of misplaced anger, a lot of mistakes. Um, I think that, you know, I know your podcasts are are about the critical incident, not to rehash what we just got done talking about. It doesn't have to be a singular incident. I think that this is a tough job. You have a career of cumulative things that race through your brain. Um, There's a saying, I think, in the training environment – Commander Grubbs is over the training section, but there's a saying within training that, like the military, when you're in the military, you train, 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 waiting to fight. Well, unfortunately, these days with officers, especially with the shortages we all have, what do officers do? We fight, 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 waiting for the days off where we can train. And it stacks up. It really stacks up on all of us. So as we talk about critical incidents, I guess I'd just like to remind the, the viewers that this is all – it's going to stack up on you. It doesn't, you don't have to go through the monstrous mother of all shootings or whatever. It's all going to stack up. Uh, just the other week, I reached out to some of the my old crew over at Round Rock because they, they experienced a, a pretty bad fatality accident. It wasn't a fa- – sorry, it's, she's not fatal yet. But a very bad accident involving a young girl, uh, very serious injuries, and a few of the officers were pretty shaken up, and my phone rings. So – uh, get to talk to a couple of them that were pretty shaken up. And, um, so yeah, it, it is all cumulative. So as far as being tough no, it's not, it's not about being, we're all going to have to shoulder that burden. If you have a career in law enforcement these days, you're going to shoulder the burden.
1: And if I could, I would describe it as death by paper cuts mm-hmm. because it's that thin slicing every shift. There is something else that takes a piece of you away And it happens daily, weekly, monthly. And for folks like us who've been in this for 24, 27, 30 years, it takes its toll. It takes pieces of you each and every time you have one of those critical incidents. Yes, And you have to replace that with something else, which is your coping skills and your empathy and how you deal with that
3: constant stress yeah you have to and, and I'm glad you touched on the coping skills and and hopefully they're actually healthy coping skills because we have a lot <laughs> in this profession that um you know wait wait till you get to uh episode 54 with uh Gordon Fulton I mean you have what the trauma can bring you uh in and, and it could be a 7-7 type incident mm-hmm. or a June 7th, 2021 type incident, you never, you never know what's going to happen or it could be just the 19 year old fatality accident that hangs with you, uh, forever. You'll always, forever. You'll always remember that. And it's just a matter of how you cope and how you communicate with your, your support staff or support staff, your support group of, it is staff, your your family and friends (laughs) or staff in some ways. In some ways. So how you... Communicate with them to get you through that. Because you can't do it all alone.
2: Right. And that's that's another thing. You cannot do it all alone. As you've said a million times on this podcast before, you have got to reach out. If it's not a spouse, if it's a friend, if you're not married, whatever the situation is, talk to somebody.
3: So we've been teasing uh, a critical incident uh, after you left EPS. We've been dancing around it for here an hour. And I want to get into that. Aaron, I, wanna, uh, I want you to go back to June of 2021 and paint a picture for the listener of that entire incident, and we're just going to let it unfold from there. Okay.
0: So, call originally came across as I was in uh, Round Rock, Texas. Day shift. It was about 10 a.m. Call comes across. Man man with a gun. You get the initial wave of calls. Uh, I think anybody that's been... In any kind of patrol capacity, you kind of hold your breath a little bit. Sometimes it's not really a gun. Sometimes it's a toy. You know, a million things happen when something is originally a man with a gun. But everybody kind of checks on to that call and kind of starts scooting that direction type of a thing. It was a little bit outside of of the district that I was was assigned to. So I hop on the interstate and I start heading south to where uh, the location was at. Well, the call notes start escalating. Radio traffic starts escalating. Uh, man with a handgun, threatening people, threatening their lives, threatening children. Um, had had a couple people, some of the management staff that were cowering underneath uh, the tables. Fortunately, they left a open mic on a cell phone. So dispatch was getting excellent information based off of an open line. Uh, so they were adding really good quality call notes. So as I was going down the interstate, you know, you're picking it up, you go to Code 3 and it was, it was ironic, really, the, uh, the other officers, so you end up in that caravan of other officers, and everybody kind of miraculously starts being in the same place at the same time, and there was a string of the guys that were, were getting stuck on, on the interstate, I don't know, maybe chalk it up to a little bit of DPS, I probably didn't do the safest driving, I look at the commander here, like, okay, don't, don't look at that, but, um, so, you know, the, the normal thing is stay to the left, try to push him to the right type of thing, well, it was just causing a little bit of chaos, and there was a, wide open spot on the right. So I just went over to the right and I started hammer down in the, and the uh, shoulder. And I ended up passing like everybody else that was re- responding to this thing. So somehow I, I I get, you know, kind of the front. Uh, so the call was at a hotel and the hotel was right next to a bank. So as I kind of end up passing by everybody, I show up on scene and visually it's chaos. The, the scene's chaos. I see people exiting out of the back of the hotel. I see some of the Round Rock officers that are already there trying to do a little bit of crowd mitigation at the uh, at the bank and the drive through that was immediately next to the property where this was all going down. So I kind of just think in my head, I'm like, I'm going to wedge myself where I don't see the other guys. Like we're going to start to form the perimeter. So I kind of put my vehicle um, in a spot where I didn't see a lot of the other marked units uh, showing up first thing i do you know get out get out the m4 listen to the radio traffic take take another glance at uh, the call notes on description and everything else uh, as soon as i grabbed the the m4 make it ready i remember looking at the heavier body armor and i remember thinking like i, I just don't have to, i don't have the extra 20 se- i know i know commander's going to like laser beam through me here um but so i know i know probably not the best decision in retrospect uh but grab the m4 and go and I see a very good friend of mine, uh, officer Norton. So James and I were up North. Uh, I'd like to say he's, we're, 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 brothers. He was a young officer, but one of those young officers that man, this guy could make some correct decisions. He was for the amount of years that he had on. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like working with a 15, 18 year cop, even though he only had, uh, four, four ish years, three ish years on at the time. Uh, very solid guy, solid tactician, solid officer. Um, and I see him, he had parked kind of uh, angular away from me, and I see him heading in um, with a small group. So I'm like, now, you know, wherever Norton goes, I'm going. Um, so I link up with Norton and uh, Sergeant Bristow and another officer, Kevin Prugier, and we decide to go ahead and, and make entry because the calls had escalated to the point where the guy with the gun had uh, been in the lobby and essentially taken hostages of some of the crew. Um, just to paint the picture a little bit as we were ex as we were arriving uh, there were some people exiting out the back and kind of running out the back but uh, one of the eerie things was the silence like you'd think that you'd hear yelling or like aggravated mail in the lobby and it was just dead silence and a couple of cars with doors ajar like somebody had obviously just stopped in the middle of the parking lot and fled door was ajar so i'm passing by these things kind of making these mental notes like okay some, something's going on i can't hear anything we don't know what's going on uh and nothing's coming through the earpiece at this point so we decide to do a uh, soft entry in in the back where it was by the pool you know every holiday and you know, pick 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 any one of the hotels that everybody answers calls at you know you got the rear with the um, with the pool area, we tried to enter through there, and that was kind of a fail-breach situation. The key card that we had gotten off of one of the uh, managers that fled out the back or somebody that fled out the back, it wasn't opening that door, which would have given us the best possible way into uh, the hotel. It would have given us a really clean uh, angle entry. It would have been much safer. Well, the only other option, there were two other options at that point, and one was the the side facing the uh, it was IH-45, one of the, the main roads. So obviously we didn't want to go that direction because it was nothing but glass walls uh, on that one side, uh, and he would have seen seen us coming. So the only other way to enter was through one of those motion-activated doors by the elevator, and uh, whew, that was a gut check. So what we didn't know at the time was that the individual had been in there for a few minutes. He had essentially taking hostages of some of the management staff, um, brandishing a weapon, threatening to kill everybody. Uh, he was staging magazines, ammo uh, at different locations on some of the furniture that was in the entry lobby area. Uh, my belief, looking back on it, Commander Grubbs can weigh in or, or not weigh in because I don't want to necessarily put her on the spot. But you take a look at the uh, the footage, he he was expecting us to come in the front. He was prepped and ready for us to come make an entry on that that glass wall, the, the long glass wall to the main uh, entry and staging ammo and everything else. So we entered through the side, through that motion activated door. And I gotta say that, was talk about trauma, talk about some of the things that I did, kind of some of the EMDR work uh, was ironically of all things, that stupid motion activated door. Um, everybody talks about time dilation and everything else in a critical incident. And we knew that was the only way in aside from an area we didn't wanna go but as we stack up and we round the corner to like get the thing to motion activate you got to stand in front of a dual glass that had just enough of a mirror tint on it that you could not see on the inside of it so we essentially had to fan out wait for the motion to activate and the door i swear it seemed like it took like 10 seconds to open it didn't really but in your mind you're just like my god if it's going to be it's going to be right here and i'm never going to see it coming i remember i remember mentally preparing for The rounds to come out of the kind of that mirrored glass door but it didn't it opened it up and uh me fruget and norton we go in and um norton i can't give this guy enough credit he had the superior angle um on the left side so uh, he was kind of leading off he had about a half step ahead of me and fruget i'm trying to cover down on a couple of the uh small there was a exercise room uh, i'm trying to cover areas that he could have been bunkered out uh towards trying to locate this guy so as, as soon as i'm scanning and uh, taking a look at the exercise room which was uh you know window mostly windowed rooms i hear norton instantly starting to to call out so i fan back around swing in in between norton and uh fruget and i i have to give a monstrous amount of credit to the clarity of commands that, that Norton had Norton had superior angle was calling out commands very clear, very forcefully. I think he actually spooked the guy. If you, if you watch the body cam, I think though he was, he was ready for a fight. I think the angle, the approach, the immediacy and the call out commands, it made him stumble just for enough of a time to, uh, to continue with calls and for him to, I think, process the scene that now he has three officers there, um, you know, with a, with a partial angle around a, a, the, the corner of the entry area of the lobby. But one of the things that I remember, and, and I don't think Norton gets, gets enough credit in this, is anybody that's been in a critical incident, I think it, it boils down to pie slices, it, things that you have to process very quickly, very rapidly but he was doing the commands where I didn't have to give verbal commands. He had an angle to where I – it was easier for me to go through the combat. I remember telling myself, do the combat breathing, breathe, process, take a look at everything 360 degrees on what he's doing. And I remember that he started talking, but he starts looking at Norton and thumbing the hammer on on the pistol that he had raised. It was raised – uh, for, your, for your listening audience, uh, how to describe this? I guess uh, movie-esque style with the pistol kind of close to his face, what we what cops always joke about, like that's not how you do entries with a pistol up by your face. That's how he spun around the corner was with the pistol kind of by the face and when Norton gave him the commands and uh, really started kind of, I think, putting him back a little bit on his heels about, I think, what the guy's ultimate master plan was. Uh, but once he started thumbing that the hammer back on on the pistol. I I just remember instantaneously thinking like time just completely slows to a crawl. And I remember thinking like, I've gone through my breathing that is now a line in the sand. Like I'm not going to let you. I remember thinking like Norton was the one that was in the most harm's way. The guy was right-handed. It was in his right side. The way we had pied around the corner, Norton was on that right side closest to the pistol. And once I started seeing him, uh, thumb that thumb that hammer i, I interpreted that as i'm going to get one extra little I think it's going to give me that extra quarter second or whatever and so i i fired um, so a um, little bit of i guess you could say confirmation as soon as he goes down he immediately drops um two solid rounds uh one of them was spine um so he goes down, the pistol kind of skitters away from him, close distance. Well, he immediately, immediately reaches over to grab the pistol and, and re-engage. And I remember, uh, you know, we gave commands and we were able to get the uh, weapon away from him. But that was just kind of a, that was a bit of a wake-up call, I think. It's, in a way, a it was very validating because it, it was a gut check. Like, did I make the right decision? Did I not make the right decision? Did we not give him enough time? Did we not talk to him more? A million things go through. Uh, go through your mind, but once I saw him reach to re engage with that pistol, uh, it was it made sense, for lack of a better term. So, um one of the things I, I think what will loop in Commander Grubbs and some of the, you know, pros and cons about everything, but I, I remember as soon as it as soon as it happened, as soon as he dropped, as soon as we get the gun away, I'm turning around to Norton. Norton did have his kid on. I apologize, Commander Grubbs, I didn't have my my kid on, but he had the med kit on. So I remember telling Frugier, "Here's my here's my rifle. We're dumping my rifle. We got to go immediately uh, to uh, to medical action." So it was you compound that trauma, I guess you could say. It, it's you you went through a gut check on the door, commands, everything. You engage in shooting, and now you have to immediately switch roles to uh, trying to save somebody. Um, fortunately I got to give a lot of credit to Fruget on this because, uh, Fruget had the presence of mind that I think I had lost at that point, uh, where I was solely focused now on what I had just done, what I had processed. Fruget continued on clearing the rest of, uh, the lobby area. So kudos to him for the cool headedness to always look for that second, always look for another aggressor. Um, he, he, he did a really good job on that. um, so we start working on them, and I remember my hands trembling so bad that as I went to get the chest seal, I think I dropped the original. I think the first kit that I pulled out, I think I, I dropped it because my hands were now starting to, to tremble a little bit. Again, combat breathing, calm down you know, there, stop, and stop acting like an idiot. Um, trying to reapply uh, chest seals and talk to the guy a little bit, and uh, I still remember... You know, time dilation's still kicking in a little bit, but I remember one of the first people through the door as soon as Norton called out, and you could hear it over the earpiece, it, you know, uh, shots fired. Uh, he gave a little bit of specifics on on what had been hit, who, who had been hit. Everybody's okay. But the, uh, the SWAT commander, Sergeant Brian Quick, I don't know where this dude came from because um, he's a motors unit. And I don't even remember seeing him on the list of calls. I'm sure he was monitoring and he was on his way. But where does a motors unit Come flying through the door with the full, like, large med kit. Like, where did you put that on the bike? Quick, I I still don't know where you got that thing from, but... Uh, the other doors open I see him coming in with that very large the large trauma kit and everything being a little bit confused like how's oh, motorist gonna have a trauma kit but I swear to God that dude had wings on him because here he is coming in Norton and Frugier are occupied with security still and I mean you can still smell the cordite in there everything going on but immediately Brian comes over rips open the kit and very cleanly starts going through cutting the clothing helping me out with the kit And I remember I maybe on video I think I even said like under breath I was like thank you. I, I, I was having a hard time controlling now because the adrenaline dump is happening and, and you know, your fine motor skills are starting to get a little bit shot here. we trying to put chest seals on and do everything else. And he was like, I got you. We walked through that. Um, and started getting the chest seals on, but then once a few of the other officers started sprinkling in, uh, that's when Sergeant Watson, uh, wisely. So scooped me up by the scruff of the neck and was like out, like, let's get out. Let's, like you're you're done you're done working on them you're done all this takes me outside which was wise because it was an immediate emotional shedding as soon as i got outside because i was like my first thought was here we go again like here comes lawsuits here comes all the rest of that here like here we go again um so i i started kind of emotionally breaking down he saw that so he's, he's like almost like arm carrying me like come on get to the car and uh get to the car hands me bottle of water and, um, sits down just real briefly. He's like, I, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever seen the, um, I think the guy ended up getting a medal on or the, the captain uh, that loaded up one of his, one of his, uh, soldiers in uh, onto a black Hawk in Afghanistan, uh, goes out taking fire. They land the bird and he comes over, he reaches over and he kisses the guy on the head and later the guy passes. But, uh, but on video, just, random thing but i still remember like watson like holding me he's like it's gonna be all right calm down get water think about what we got to do take deep breaths um and uh and that's whenever i was like i need to use your phone to to gretchen's point i was like i first call I ain't gonna ain't gonna come from commander uh, i mean everybody's now showing up all the rest of that so it's the first thing i could think i was like i i got to get on the phone and i got to tell gretchen that what had happened before the news started picking it up and everything. So, uh, but I do remember uh, I didn't have my phone. I don't know where my phone was at. It could have been my pocket for all I know. And I just didn't do like Watson shoves phone and, and uh, my face. But I remember doing the, like, hold the, hold the phone up. No, 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 hold it. No, no. Like, what do you say? That's one of the things that I I think you, you, you don't think about too much. You think about all this post shooting stuff. You go through all this training, Yeah. How do you actually dial the numbers and tell your significant other, like, I've just been in what? How do you describe it? Do you describe it as a shooting? Do you describe it as a critical incident? Do you say I'm okay? Like, what do you say? Um, So I don't even actually remember what I said. I remember I was like, are you at work? Um, I'm okay. I've been in a shooting. And uh, I remember she was kind of stoic, silent over the phone um, a little bit, but I remember having a very kind of brief call because now everybody's everybody's starting to congregate or the chiefs are showing like everything's starting to happen quickly yet slowly at the same time and and shooting that that first phone call out so i'll i'll kind of stop talking now and i'll let you gretchen process where you're at and the impact to you on that
2: so i'll paint you my word picture this is june 7th 2021 legislative session had ended one week before that and my job in government relations here that's everything for for my job the legislative session is crazy t cole was going through our major agency sunset review which to those outside the state uh, may not be as familiar with but it's it's the deep dive into every state agency that happens periodically and we had just gotten through that but not gotten through that because a lot of political things happened at the end of legislative session and so um We had had session end on a Monday. That Thursday, we had our quarterly commission meeting. And then the following Monday was June 7th. And so, you know, here I am thinking I'm going to work for a normal Monday. This is my first day back at work, kind of maybe back at a little calmer pace. And everything's going to be all right. Moment to breathe, right? Wrong. So I had just gotten out of a meeting. I was walking back to my office, and uh, I've got a watch that shows me if I'm getting a call on my personal phone and it shows up with a 512 number and side note i've got an 817 personal number that i've had since college and so it's actually a helpful screening tool so when i get a 512 number it's usually pretty intentional it's not just a spam call so it was a number that i didn't have saved and i kind of brushed it off oh you know dentist office that's right yeah and i was going back to my office but I made a stop at my coworkers office and we have adjoining offices. It's like adjoining hotel rooms where there's a pass through door in between. So I'm sitting in a chair in his office. I can look into my office and number comes up again. Like, That's weird. So as I'm going, it ends. And as I'm going back to my desk to pick up my phone to answer it, it's ringing again. And okay, something's clearly going on and so I remember answering the phone hello like it's me and I was kind of caught off guard said, it's Aaron I'm Like, oh crap okay and yeah so he says you know I'm okay but I've been in a shooting like okay so immediately thinking you know okay What's going on? And so I, I started my interrogation of like, okay, are you actually okay? I'm saying, yes, completely uninjured. Like, I want to use my words very clearly here. You are completely uninjured because if he's like most other cops, which I think that's probably the case, they tend to downplay some injuries and not necessarily give the whole vulnerable picture, right? So I wanted to be very clear about that. Like. Okay, and he established. Yes, I am completely uninjured. Okay, how about the people that you were with? Yes, only bad guy down. Okay, all right. So have a little moment. He's like, I, I, you know, I gotta go. I'll, I'll call you later. I'll fill you in. Can't really talk right now, but I want, want to let you know. You know, deep breath. Okay, hang up the phone. Have a little moment to myself in my office, and went back in my coworker's office. We were good friends, Mike and too. And by that point, uh, my boss, who's since retired, Kim Vickers, and our general counsel, who is our current interim executive director and has been gracious enough to give us the space, John Beecham, um, we're all you know, kind of close-knit group. They're all in my coworker's office that joins mine at this point. So I round the corner to go back into Mike's office, and John sees me and kind of gives me a look because clearly something's going on. And you know, all my intentions of being this stoic, proud, you know, I'm a cop's wife situation went right out the window. So I I break down and I managed to get out just enough that Aaron had been in a shooting and he's okay, at least physically right now. I don't know what else is going to happen. And this is where I will say I had Again, kind of going back to having worked in the law enforcement world and work around coworkers who are officers and have their own storied careers, Um, none of us really knew what to do in that moment. So it's like, okay, let's have story time. So, you know, my boss talked about a time, you know, again, supporting that notification part of, you know, his wife had gotten a call from a dispatcher, hey, we don't really know where he is right now, but he's in the woods trying to find uh, an armed suspect it's a really terrible idea to call his wife in that situation when you have no idea that anything is wrong or what could be wrong. Uh, and then, you know, Mike, my other coworker was saying, yeah, and I had heard this story before of a time where he had gotten in a really bad car wreck on duty and the captain and whatever leadership were going to go to his house and he was working nights and knock on his door and wake up his wife. And what do you think if you're a wife of an officer in that moment, that the worst has happened? So, again, terrible idea, but ways to highlight how right this whole situation was handled. So we sit there for a little bit and, you know, kind of not really knowing what to do, shoot the breeze. Of course, like, the whole time my mind's going a million miles an hour trying to think of, Okay, what is he doing right now? What's the next steps? How long is it going to be before I get to see him? And what's the situation going to be like at that point? And so probably I'm glued to my phone at this point. Probably wasn't going to miss that call again. About 20 minutes later, the second call that I got was from Commander Grubbs.
0: And let me stop you there to preface like what happened on the back end. So push pause on on that call. So I get escorted back to... PD headquarters and, uh, we're kind of in a little ready room setting. And I got to give commander Grubbs uh, a lot of credit on a number of things. But, uh, one of the critical things that, that she did that body language and everything else, but, but going straight to me, not straight to the scene, not straight to other officers, not straight to the axon upload, not straight to everything. It was like, by the time I hit, PD headquarters and I don't know where y'all found it's like the softest it's like the hidden chair or something like that. This thing's like Oh my yeah, it is like the softest chairs in the universe. And I'm like sinking into this chair. About the time that I can like feel my heart kind of start to slow down a little bit. She just bursts open the door with like eyes of fury. Like we kinda like look at each other and she's I mean, she's doing the cop like three sixty, like up and down me like you're you're okay, you're okay and you know, and then she she saw I could see it in her face soften up and ask me, you know, are, are, are you okay? How are you doing? All the rest of that, and I, it was a, it was a short conversation, but I remember saying like, "Ma'am, I I need you to I need you to do me a favor because I I know where her brain is going." I was like, "Can you can you pick up your you. phone?" Yeah, she knows me. I mean, literally, my arm could be like over on the table getting ready to get surgically reattached or something like that. And I probably would have minimized it. I'd be like, it's okay. It's uh, we'll go to the hospital later on. But so I, I asked her, I was like, can you, can you call Gretchen and talk to her and truly tell her like, I'm okay. You're She's going to ask you, are you looking at, like, I, I, I gave the rundown, which went to script, and so I said, please call. So I'll actually then turn it over to Commander Grubb. So it was like, punt, um, phone's yours, and then now she's got to call, the, only the second call now to Gretchen, who's having her moment.
1: Yeah, so he skipped one of my first questions, which was, have you contacted your wife? Does oh. she know what happened? Yes, but I don't think she believes me. <laughs> <laughs> So could you please call her and let her know that I'm okay? And I call. I said, I am looking at him. He is safe. He is at the PD. Everything is okay. Can I come get you? Or are you okay to drive? And I believe you asked me at that point, you mean I can come there and be with him? I said, yes, absolutely. The sooner the better. And if you don't feel like you can drive... I will come and get you. Yeah. uh, I remember saying, well, I didn't know that that was an
2: option, but yes, I would like to be with him. And so I let my boss know what was going on and I hightailed it up to Round Rock. And in retrospect, maybe it wasn't the best idea for me to be driving in that moment, (laughs) but it was the choice that I made. And, you know, also thinking about it, getting ready to tell this whole story. I think it also in some way gave me Time to myself to start thinking through what was going to be happening. And of course, you know, you go through the entire, it's a 20 minute drive, but you go through the entire range of emotions. Everything from anger at the guy who caused this whole situation, and how dare you point a gun at my husband, to what does this mean for us? How is he going to handle this? Is he going to shut down and not talk about it? What is this going to mean for our marriage? What does like all of the things that you could possibly think about in a 20 minute span? I I hightailed it up to the Round Rock police department and commander Grubbs had said, tell them to ask for when you get to the front, tell them you're here to see commander Grubbs and they'll come get you. And so, you know, I get up there and, uh, the person that was at the front desk said something like, yeah, I don't know what's been going on, but I looked out the window and all these cars were flying out of the parking lot. And I kind of took a deep breath. I'm like, how do I handle this thing? Yeah, that's why I'm here. And left it at that. And so somebody came out and got me and, you know, I had been coaching myself in the car the whole time amongst all of these other thoughts like, okay, you're, you're going to get there and you're not going to break down and you're going to be strong because the last thing that he needs right now is to be taking care of you while he's in this situation because this is really him going through this and he doesn't need that right now so you're going to be strong and you're not going to cry and you're going to get through this and of course we get into that peer support room and the second I saw him that all went out the window Um, it sounded like a real good plan at the time but it just didn't quite work out that way and so that was that was the beginning of the journey
3: when you first saw him what went through your mind when you first you finally got there to that 20 minute drive
2: mostly okay he really is okay there's no holes in him because i think commander had even confirmed that that was the case but i i got to see it for myself and i i remember it sticking in my mind for some reason that oh he's already changed because they had gone through the whole process of starting to take photos and take his uniform off of him and everything because he was in a a undershirt and shorts by then and okay let let's and so you know the staff that was all there and had been gathering around um there's kind of a conference room and then an inner room that's just got the comfy chairs that we were talking about and so um you know he and i went into the inside room and everybody else kind of gave us some a few minutes and so we just we stood for a minute and cried and he's like i'm okay and
3: and at this point you didn't know any of the specifics of the incident
2: not not specifics he okay. had told me I think that a guy was threatening people with a gun at the hotel. I didn't know
3: if you'd looked on the phone. Fa- I mean, look, checked on the phone. Fa- I don't any think anything had or, been released okay, at that yet. point. Okay.
2: And so, you know, we went into the peer support room, and for the next few hours, um, it was kind of a rotation of people coming through, and that was that was really the very beginning. I don't know that it's a journey that ever truly ends, but that was the beginning.
0: So, so part of what i think is highly successful that round rock did um i mean of course there's always learning moments and everything but uh you know getting me off the scene um stopping me from continuing to do that medical care that was that was a good decision um but the immediate support that commander grubbs had and then uh sergeant watson who was also there on the back end i mean they're they're readying food they're readying um Accurately so, they pinpointed somebody that I probably want to talk to, which is Noah Monsavise, uh one of the officers that have been in a couple of his own officer-involved shootings that um, I think I'll probably like telepathy-red mind or whatever, getting him fired up. So we got peer support on the way. We've got um, TMPA, Robert McCabe, uh, attorney coming to support me uh, for the legal aspects of it. Um, there were some moments, even being... This wasn't my first officer-involved shooting. This wasn't the first officer-involved shooting that I worked. Um, and still, like that, you're never fully prepared for kind of the cascading waves of things. And one of them I, I distinctly remember, and I remember talking with Commander Grubbs and kind of a little AAR afterwards, is you get back, and I understand that crime scenes got to do their job, but one of the first things you, you do is, okay, you know, doff doff belt off everything radio the earpiece comes out now that you know fortunately i think even you told me like turn the radio off like no more no more radio no more earpiece but now you're like you're you're, you're taking stuff off so keep in mind uh, i think you and i talked kind of during a break uh the, the old 90s mentality of like oh well, all you really got to do is just switch guns well if there's in a shooting then just give them your weapon and then then what else what else do you do um but then it was the taking off the uniform it was taking off the gun belt Taking off everything you have, being photographed head to toe, you real your brain immediately starts thinking: Did I do right? Did I did I do this right? Did I make a mistake? Did I could I have done better? Could I have done a number of things? And, and it starts to really solidify that on that on that process.
4: So, listening to both of you, um, the common theme that you kind of hear between your your in the car. And then what you're going through is the questions. Oh, yeah. It's like the unanswered questions. And it's almost like the sooner that you get these questions answered, the sooner you start being better. So you're sitting there, you know, what's this going to do to us? How is he? Is he okay? Okay. You're wondering, did you do the right thing? Did you make the right decision? What's going to happen from here? Is, you know, here we go again. And it's like you have all of these unanswered questions. And it's almost like that is a huge portion of the trauma and the difficulty going through the situation is these questions that you need answers for. To. sure.
0: And I think that the, uh, there's what, what would you call it? administrative bravery? I will give a nod. Uh, to Chief Richards and Commander Grubbs, because, because of that previous shooting of mine, I started to become a little bit hyper fixated on, did the Axon camera pick it up? I knew it was a long gun and I knew it was center. So I was like, with my luck, either A, it was somehow off B, there's like a big old sling in front of the camera to where nothing got picked up. And so I really start obsessing almost a little bit over, I just want it to be clear i like just i just wanted them to know and understand what i did and i remember I, I, you must have shot like a magical text message or something like that because as i'm i think i even started getting emotional with you in the room and we, we talked about that previous shooting and as we were talking i don't know you, you must have miracled chief richards into the room I, I i don't know but i'll let you i'll let you take it from there
1: yeah so what he didn't know at the time is I had watched the entire incident live on Exxon. Um, I was at the PD when the call dropped. I was recovering from surgery, so I couldn't go out into the field. But God had a plan that day. I was exactly where I needed to be. But I watched from the time they made entry, I watched you render care to the man i watched first aid i watched them pull you off i i saw the whole thing happen so i already knew the anxiety that you were feeling i felt like we could put some of that aside immediately and give you a little bit of relief at that point
3: well props props to you commander for doing that because this is coming off a year of 2020 of of the George Floyd incident and nationwide and worldwide just uh, you know everything anger. being questioned yes everything being questioned anger against police and and just take the human response that you're going through of having to go through that but then you're worried about everything that you know
0: it's hard not to think in, in a negative state right it was very tough on I, I still remember and I, I probably cheated this a little bit and like misdirected sergeant watson but whenever i was sitting in his vehicle the the first and only thing i didn't want to look at the call screen anymore i didn't want to see the notes that were getting added and i remember immediately going to the map because i couldn't quite remember if this particular hotel which sat very 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 close to williamson or travis county and travis county has i think we could all agree an active da right now so I remember, like my, I remember seeing my hand shaking as I started to zoom in on my location, and then see that magical dotted line that I was in Williamson County, not Travis County, because from what I had heard later on, I guess Travis County had already showed up. I guess their DA shooting team or whatever had already showed up out there. Uh, so um, I, I was, I was also very. So yes, that that was also going in the back of, of my head. And I, once I snuck that peak at the, at the line, I was like, that's it. No more call notes, no more anything. No, like I shut it down, do your breathing, drink your water, think about the next uh, steps. So yeah, it definitely, the activism, everything going on right around then was at the forefront a little bit, but then also died down a little bit. Once, uh, the TNPA attorney, great, great guy, Robert McCabe's a good guy. Um, definitely somebody you want in your corner going through that incident, but then also having command commander Grubbs coming in and, and shooting straight. There wasn't, I feel very fortunate that I didn't sit in any of those rooms and feel like I was under scrutiny though. We all know from a command perspective, I know that there is that level of scrutiny. They didn't make me feel that way. So I can't give enough about like, the brother-sisterhood over there, that Round Rock Police Department, I cannot say enough about how they're structured over there because it it was family. I I was going through the process with family.
3: Commander, so 2018 was before this incident. That was your last Ultra involved shooting that your agency had worked. Did y'all learn something from that that y'all carried carried over to this incident to to make it better, to make the template firmer?
1: absolutely so I was a patrol lieutenant at that time and that was my shift so he mentioned Noah Um, he was one of my troops and one of my sergeants those were the two officers that were involved in that incident at that time so for those of you listening I have this worn-out beat-up notebook that starting on The 5th of January, 2018, as I walked through that officer-involved shooting with those two officers, I began to take notes about everything that I did. When I got to the scene, the officers were still on scene. They had been pulled off and were in a car, but they did very much the same thing that you did. Uh, Following the shooting, they immediately began to render first aid to this man so we had to pull them off pull them back assign them a battle buddy and get them off the scene so as i walk through this that day and the subsequent meetings and debriefs i began to take notes so anytime there was a critical incident unfortunately we had a couple more officer involved shootings go to my office get the green book now we've actually formalized this into an sop so that everybody has their own copy of of what was in this book um but yes i absolutely learned a lot from that first one i wish i could say that was the last one Mm -hmm. i believe i've had four now between the time that i was a lieutenant and a commander in patrol yeah but every time we learn how to do something better
3: i like what you you basically try to disconnect them from the scene because how dallas pd does it i mean you you have a companion officer and you you usually you're separated and you're you're put into a squad car usually at the scene just on the outskirts of the scene on the perimeter waiting for the lawyers to show up and wait for command having the radio on i I, I think that that's something that uh, maybe we should look at as far as is uh taking that piece out of it and changing it.
0: I, I think, yeah, turning the radio off, getting away from the screen, um, as much as curiosity you want to, we're all human. We, yeah, I, I want to, I, I want to pour over the information, but I think that was maybe going back to your original question, um, like things that you learned over previous instances that it's almost that no good can come of that. Like focus on what you have to do, focus on family, Focus on allowing those coming in to to help you help guide you through the process, uh, type of a thing that that you're you're no longer captain of the ship that the ship has left the port and you need to you need to go sit on the couch the nice comfy couch and let the captain drive for a little bit. Um, which that's why I I can't thank Commander Grubbs enough because I she, she was she was driving the boat. Um, I mean they got us some pizza and mm-hmm. like it, it. There were several moments when you could just kind of. Breathe, just take it easy. But the, the fact that they would answer questions, I, I think was very important. Um, I've seen some officer involved shootings go down to where, you know, we're not going to discuss that. We're not gonna let you watch the video. We're not answering any questions. We're not like you need to, everything was very clinical. But I, I think pretty much any question I, I threw out, uh, it was a thoughtful answer that came right back at me from command. So that that's very powerful for an officer who just went through something to have somebody in a command structure that processes what what your needs are, what you're asking, and giving you answers. Yes, they're still on scene. I can still remember like, did he die? Yes. Um there there were several things that you want to know the answers to, but having I, I guess maybe half battle buddy, but half like having that command structure there to answer the tough questions. Uh, it, it it meant it meant a lot. It meant a lot.
2: So we actually learned, and again, having me be there through this process from the beginning made made it so much easier for us to process it together. But we actually learned that the suspect had died from the attorney. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that, but you know, you you said something. He had come in. And we had this discussion at first of, well, f- for me, do, do I need to leave the room while y'all talk? And he said, the way I see it, he and I have attorney-client privilege and you have spousal privilege. So that's really up to him. And so I stayed in the room and got to hear his first recount. And he got to the point where and he talked about the suspect. And um, Robert had said, he, you know, Aaron said something like, I I don't actually, I don't know what his status is. And he said, he is deceased. And so we had this moment of Mm. understanding of what had happened and then continued on with, you know, recounting the rest of the story.
0: I I can't stress enough to any other PD commands that may be listening, um, best practices, the fact that all this, almost in totality, from the, with the exception of I just got dressed down, photographs taken, all the rest of that. But she was along for the ride on all this. Uh, the attorney conversations, the conversations with Commander Grubbs, the conversations with you know, being greeted by Jason Watson, uh, my peer support, Noah, who had been through shootings, come in, talk to Like, she was there for all of that. And I... I can't stress how important that process was. And I hate to flash forward too much, but when we got home at the end of the night, it had all been discussed. We'd lived it. We talked about it. We'd cried over it. It was time to now eat a little bit of meal. And we slept. The, the, the trauma was shared. The trauma was co-experienced. So I didn't have to come home through all that and have to, rip off the bandaid again and spend the next three hours talking, rehashing, having a Q and a situation go on. It it was, I, I, I can't stress enough, like how good it was to go home. And we had, we, all of us in this room, we had (laughs) experienced it all from start to finish. I did not know that she, I didn't know you had it on purple. Obviously I wasn't looking down at my body cam to see that, Everybody was watching. I think I heard that later, but I didn't know you were one of them. So, yeah, we we shared the trauma and I think that is key. I wasn't locked away in a secret room and I wasn't escorted off and like, you know, with the with the light bulb on and and questioned immediately. All that came later on. You we were, we experienced the trauma. You
2: were treated as a victim and not as a suspect, and that was huge.
3: That's important because you actually got some straight answers. Some straight answers yes. that could be mm-hmm. answered at that, from from a, yeah. a legal standpoint, you got straight answers that night from people that were in the know and could tell you mm-hmm. to put you at somewhat ease because you know there there are some things that are out of everybody's control of how anything's going to be spun or or uh, you know armchair quarterback a week or two later. But at that moment, at that time, at that scene, you actually got some answers to to ground you a little better. Yes, and to start putting the process together to you know, piece it together mentally so you can for at least a night to have some peace of mind.
0: We yeah. slept. Yeah. I, I can't I can't put it as clearly as that.
4: And I think it's important to note that I mean the investigation part of it still went on. Sure. So there is a way to do both at the same time. Have the investigation, which is the necessary part of the police department, is to Make sure that everything's copacetic or went up. But there's a way to do both of them where you can have the investigation, but you can also look after the officer so and the family the and yep. make sure that everybody's okay. Because yep. even just going home and being able to sleep after trauma like that, that is huge. so important for of recovering, yeah. 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 recovering from it
0: and and my my two instances in the shootings were, were kind of night and day so the experiences were very different yet mingled. i think commander grubbs saw that on my face being able to have some of that but i'm actually interested to hear I, I didn't know commander grubbs watched that live that now makes a lot of sense as you and i think about the shared experience um, but you were talking earlier before we even started the podcast that you had your own example of kind of the 180 degree difference that I think helped you help me. So what, what is that? Cause now I'm, now I'm curious about what you went through. That was difficult. Where my trauma yes. started.
1: <laughs> so, um, mine started July the 15th, 2000. My husband was working as an officer in a local jurisdiction. I was working as a reserve officer elsewhere. Um, in bed at two fifteen AM, I got a phone call from my husband's partner. He was screaming in the phone uh-huh. and crying uh-huh. and said, There has been an accident. You have to get to the hospital right now. Oh my God. And disconnected. Oh my God. So I get in the truck and I'm calling dispatch saying, Hey, I need to know what's going on well, we can't tell you. I said, I'm an officer. You can tell me what is going on. You can tell me enough to know if he's dead or alive at least. Um, Unbeknownst to me, I was driving past the accident scene where my husband had been hit by a drunk driver. So mere seconds before his vehicle was hit from behind, he told the violator, let's step out from between the cars Mm -hmm. in case somebody hits us. Um, It was a Fort Hood soldier who had been drinking at Sixth Street all night, hit him at highway speeds, flipped him up over the back of the car and into the ditch. Um, So I'm trying to get information over the phone from dispatch, nothing. I get to the hospital and run into the emergency room. I'm, I'm still okay. Like you, I'm thinking I'm going to hold this together. I got this. I've got this. Not going to cry. Yep. I've got this. Um, Walk into the emergency room and the nurse says, well, what can I help you with? And I said, my husband's been in an accident. He's an officer. They're bringing him here. And she looks at me and says, Oh no, honey, they're not bringing him here. They're taking him straight to Brackenridge which was the only level one trauma center at the time. Mm -hmm. I found out something really unique about um, my response to severe trauma that night. My knees buckled out from under me Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm trying to process this and how am I gonna get to Brackenridge? And the doctor came out from, he had heard this exchange and saw me uh, fall into a chair and he said, okay, breathe. I heard him talking in the ambulance. He was conscious. I can tell you that they are not bringing him here simply because of the fact that he is an officer and he needs a trauma center. How can I get you to the hospital? Wow. So (laughs) then I get all the way downtown Austin and walk into the emergency room there. And I round the corner, and his partner runs at me, bawling and crying and screaming, and just grabs onto me. Like, hmm. Okay, he's dead. And I can see his boot sitting on the end of a bed, and there's nobody there. So I, I just immediately thought that he was dead. Um, He ended up with nerve damage and concussion and a lengthy recovery. During the time that he was recovering, I got pregnant with our first child. Three months later, when he went back to work, um, I lost our first child one of the first nights that he was back at work because during this entire time of recovery and Everything that went on, we were on an island by ourselves. Um, There was little contact from the agency or from the officers. But I vowed that night, if I'm ever, ever in a position to keep someone from going through this trauma the way I went through it, that's what I'm here for.
2: And you did it amazingly well.
1: Well, and, you know, the unfortunate part is it took that to get this book and to be there that night, but I heard your heart on the phone, and I was immediately on the phone at 2.15 in the morning Uh getting that phone call From someone who didn't take the time to think about how that was going to affect me at that time. So every one of these that I've had since then, my first question is, have you talked to your wife? Can we go and get her and bring her here so that she's not running all over Central Texas trying to find you at a hospital?
0: Wow
3: that goes to the empathy and compassion support and it's from real life incident it's not just going through a leadership class because usually honestly probably most police leadership classes don't they wouldn't cover that you went through it yourself and you made a vow to not let it happen on your watch thank you
1: because i have a responsibility for every single one of my officers. And I tell their wives when I have the opportunity, I am going to do everything in my power to send your husband home, at least as good as he came to work tonight. When I would get a new group of IPOs, introductory police officers, I would hand out my phone number to wives because we had another critical incident where there was not a lot of information that went out, and all the wives were doing the find my iPhone and knew that their husbands were there, but they couldn't get information on what had happened and was their spouse okay. So I started passing out my cell phone number. I said, call me, send me a text. As soon as I have enough information that I can ease your mind and tell you He's okay or she's okay. You're gonna get a text from me personally because I'm somewhere in the mix, and I don't want you sitting at home panicking because you can't get a hold of them right now. But you can get a hold of me.
0: See, this makes a lot of sense because I, I this wasn't I didn't know this, but I felt it that day. Yeah, everything she's describing, I felt it. There was a difference. So thank you. So, I'm
3: going to change gears a little bit. And I want to get into, Gretchen, your role with TCO. And what that means, what TCO means is the state of Texas. Texas Commission of Law Enforcement. Basically, I I would imagine that every state has has their own TCO and requirements we have to do. Standards we have to meet to be a peace officer mm-hmm. in the state of Texas, and you you're employed with them now. I am. And one of the committees you were on was on the Texas Police Memorial Committee. Yep.
2: So in the 2017 legislative session, there was a bill that passed that created the Texas Peace Officers Memorial Ceremony Committee, and starting with the 2018 ceremony, it's an annual ceremony. Um, there was a statutory committee set up to plan this whole thing. And at the time, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, I just knew that it was going to be an important thing and something that I wanted to make sure was done right. And so um, I've gotten through that committee to know a, a bunch of tremendous people who do backbreaking, heartbreaking work day after day. So the 2021 ceremony had already happened um, and then we went through the this officer-involved shooting a few really a few weeks later and then getting into the 2022 ceremony and going through the planning process for that i don't think i could have anticipated and like we were talking the things that sneak up on you that you don't recognize beforehand are going to be triggers. Um, that ceremony, the day of planning, it was fine. But the day of the ceremony, I was driving down to the Capitol because it was held on the Capitol grounds it is held on the Capitol grounds and I'm just driving along and I'm a wreck. It just got me to thinking about these families and how tough that grief is and how I could have been sitting in that chair but for the grace of God and the skill sets that had been imparted on Aaron and the decision making that had been imparted in him through his years of experience I could have been sitting in that chair and that suspect could have had a very different outcome um, and so you know you, you just start thinking about what, what very nearly could have been um, and so while it is a tremendous honor to be part of this planning committee and I you know I want to do everything that I can to make sure um, that we we together as a team make this event um, meaningful for the survivors and honoring their fallen officer um, I, I could not help that day but think that I could have been one of them and that was tough And I think through, you know, time we actually talked about after this year's ceremony, because we've now had uh, another ceremony since then, you know, we talked about it and he said, you seem to have an easier time this year. I said, yeah, you know what I did. Um, I wasn't, wasn't a basket case all day this time around. I was able to, you know, just focus on making it a good ceremony and working with the team to, to do good things and... Not fixate so much on what nearly could have been.
3: Aaron, Gretchen, uh, Commander, we've covered a lot over the past couple of hours. Um we've gone through a roller coaster of emotions ourselves and I believe the listeners have as well listened to this. I wanna give I wanna open it up for each of you to give just a final thought. For, so the listeners maybe we could take something away to be better as an agency, better as a couple, better as a commander to move forward and just get tools in our tool belt to help us through this wild ride of being in the first responder world.
0: I think the parting shot that I have is, as officers, be mentally prepared. And that goes 360 degrees from how you wanna talk to your spouse, how you wanna come home at the end of the day, how you wanna end a shift. How you want to talk to each other? How you want to enter a building? Like all, you have to be thinking about all that. Um, to a note, and I hate to be you know you know granddaddy cop in the room or something like that, and you know, chastising everybody. Like do your training, eat your oatmeal. Um, but training, 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 training. Um, one of the one of the key things that stuck in my head over the past ten years is I kind of absorbed training everybody remembers the miracle on the Hudson, Sully Sullenberger landing the landing the plane in the middle of the Hudson, saving everybody's lives. Uh, in a small interview, I want to say it was like 60 minutes and this thing only lasted like a couple minutes, but they asked him like, how on earth did you pull off the impossible, the, the impossible? How did you do it? And he gave a very simple answer that, that still sticks with me today. He, he said, well, you know, throughout all my years, I've been archiving and banking away training and experience, training and experience, training and experience. And today, there was enough of a balance in that bank of training and experience that I could make a large withdrawal. Not stuck with me. It's that is it. You've got to be thinking about it. You got to be mentally prepared. You got to do your training. You got to take training seriously. You got to seek training outside of your department. Uh, We talked a little bit about jujitsu firearms, competitive, that you have to do these things if you want to survive these incidents, not only physically survive, but mentally survive it. So um, just remember, train, take it seriously, add to that bank of knowledge and be prepared because one day you're going to have to make that withdrawal. And as the saying goes, you will not rise to the occasion. You're going to stumble to the level that you've trained to. You will stumble. And I stumbled that day. There was a couple of elements I stumbled on, but had enough to make the big withdrawal. So that's what I'll leave everybody with is add to that bank. And I can't thank the own PD enough. And, you know, listening, you're, you're just sitting here listening. It all makes sense now because I didn't know that about your background. It all makes sense as to why this came together as a positive experience for me.
2: My T. heart is so happy right now to hear you talk about <laughs> training and put the emphasis <laughs> on that. But for me, um, as... We've gone through this whole journey together, check in on each other. Mm. And I think that was one thing that we did. And when I came to a point where he said, you know, Commander Grubbs did point out that therapy and counseling services are available to not just me, but to both of us. It might be time for you to make that call. And I did. And I'm very grateful that I did. Number two, there's going to be those little stumbling blocks in a different way uh, but those triggers that are going to catch you unawares and so um, I would encourage anybody listening to seek out that help that's available to them it is it makes a world of difference it did for me Um, EMDR is uh, it's kind of an amazing thing and it was described to me by the therapist that I saw as, it's gonna sound like voodoo, but (laughs) it actually works Uh, and it did. And so, you know, that's true for all different levels of trauma. Um, EMDR can be helpful and seek out the help that is available to you.
1: My final thoughts are something that I share with our cadets frequently. You don't pick the moment, the moment picks you. And all of our experiences, everything we do, leads up to that critical moment. And you have to be ready in the moment. Whether you are the one on the front line facing the danger, or you are the one responsible for that person and their well-being, make sure that you are prepared when that opportunity presents itself because you you don't get another shot at it. It is. It is a one-time. Do this right, right now.
3: I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Thank y'all for sitting down with us, uh, Commander. You, you're gonna make that work for you any day, Gretchen. It's an honor to have met you and to get to know you better. And I think the ATO listeners gonna they're gonna know the Grigsbys now moving forward and understand what we go through, and, under, and they're going to hear y'all's passion for, for service and dedication to not only the state of Texas, but to this profession. Aaron, you say you're a quiet guy, but I didn't get that at all. You did amazing. Uh, you're an amazing couple, and I think you're uh, a nice template for others to uh, first responder couples to strive to be. Thank y'all for sitting down for doing this. Thank you. Thank
5: you. That's rad. Mother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey mrs., hey mister, I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you you're lonely, I'll pull you up, life leaves you heavy, when the glowing gets tough, I'll be your shoulder, together we'll run, up from the bottom, yeah, we'll rise above Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. is a mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun is, Never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I will never give up
1: on you.